So, you know how they say that everyone out there has a twin somewhere in the world. Legend has it that if you encounter your twin, it is a bad omen. You've heard of doppelgangers, right? Well, one of my favorite stories about doppelgangers has to do with our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. The story goes that on the evening of his first term election, he was lying on a couch at home, and when he looked into the mirror, he saw two faces, both in his image. Although one was very pale and sickly looking, he sat up, and that second image disappeared. But when he lied down again, there again was the ghostly second image. Abe told his wife Mary about the, his experience, and it frightened her. Later that week, he tried the same thing, and lying down, sure enough, he saw the second image along with his own. Mary Todd, with her intuition, had a bad feeling that the second image had something to do with the would-be president's second term. He, of course, was elected a second term, but would not make it through that term thanks to his assassination by John Wilkes Booth. So then, was it a doppelganger? Or was it all in his mind? It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And and everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of our fantastic listeners back. Hi, we're so glad you're here. Each and every single one of you is in some way my very favorite listener. Unique, you might say? Yes, there's only one of them in the whole world. Each of them. There's only one of them. Isn't that fabulous? Are you sure? Never. <laughs> I'm never sure of anything. That's why I'm fine. Well, we do want to remind everybody to reach out to us on social media at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also check out our website at justastorypod.com to find all of our lovely sources, some of Sam's fantastic artwork, and also links to our merch store, which also features some of Sam's cool Artwork on various and sundry items. You sounded like the end of a drug commercial. When I get to the story, I'm super excited. Side effects may include. (laughs) There are side effects. (laughs) On our website, you can also find links to our Patreon page. And that is where you can go to become a sustaining members like you. If you should choose to do so, you can listen to our mini-sodes and partake in our stickers. And if any of this lasts longer than four hours, you should contact a physician, <laughs> not me. <laughs> no, they should definitely contact you. And if you, one of these episodes lasts longer than four hours, I think you're the responsible party. Or maybe me. Or maybe both of us. <laughs> Speaking of contacting us. If you would like to reach out to us with your voice instead of your keyboard, you can call the urban legend hotline you can reach that hotline by dialing 512-222-3375 right there you can call us with a urban legend a story or your deepest darkest secrets i'm sorry i just want someone to call and like oh someone emailed us the other day yeah i'm sure it was a spam bot oh no no no, wait i didn't i forgot to show you this and it said like re the omen antichrist episode mm-hmm. are you part of the secret <laughs> how creepy is that i don't like it it's a clever spam bot so sam back to the story at hand 
Both of them. Right and left. Good and bad. Doppelgangers. Doppelgangers, which is a hilariously fun word that we should all use as often as possible. What's German? I know. Well, the two parts of it, doppel, meaning double, and ganger, meaning walker or goer. Ooh, a double goer, a double walker. Yeah. So, you know, doppelganger in general is often whenever someone runs into themselves. I don't think there are two of me. I hope not. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, I'm such a weird mix of things, like, genetically. I just don't know. I wasn't thinking genetically. (laughs) (laughs) That there could be two? I was thinking more psychologically. Well, your doppelganger doesn't have to think like you, right? Good question. So the idea that there are these kind of doubles of the spirit and things like this are throughout cultures. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very, it sounds very Catholic to me. Like the Catholics are all about bifurcating, like your dueling natures. Oh yeah, you can definitely see that. I mean, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak, yeah, that sort of yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Big on that. Big on the flesh metaphor. Yeah, big on the flesh in the Catholic church. Maybe we don't say that so often. <laughs> They say it every Sunday. But throughout the world, there are these ideas. You know, you've got the Catholic ideas. You can mm-hmm. go, go further back. Let's go back to like Egypt. Okay. And so a person can be split into many, many parts. You have your physical body, of course. The flesh that's weak. Yes. That and, we don't like. Mm-hmm. Well, we can like it. It's fine. And the Catholics can't like the flesh, right? Yeah, it just has to be condoned by the church. Egyptians believe there are five distinct parts of kind of what you can consider like your soul. The part that's not... Your physical body. Mm-hmm. Although even that's kind of actually a fluidy idea. Okay. So you have your heart. Most physical. people do. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Why? Right. Well. So <laughs> I don't have a heart. This is formed from a single drop of clotted blood extracted from your mother's heart at the hour of your conception of birth. It's kind of a nice idea. I like that idea. I do. And it doesn't mean just the organ, although it does, but it's also kind of the seat of your soul. So how is soul defined there? Like your your being, yourself? So with this, it's like the good directing force in your life. Searching truth, peace, things like that. So kind of like maternal overlord. Since it is from your mom. This yeah. is like your Freudian part. Okay. And Wait, your Freud had three parts. This is your Freudian like, this is your little Freud. Okay. <laughs> and then you have your ba, the unique kind of personality. And then you have your ka. Which is like a vital spark. What makes someone a warm body? Like a life force? Kind of. So the ancient Egyptians believed that your soul split into two parts after you died. You had the Ba, which would kind of keep watch over your family. And then the Ka, which flew off to enjoy the land of two fields. I like this idea. I do too. And at night they come back together. And they don't have to come back together. No, they rest in your tomb. That's how you, you have all your stuff. Oh, so like they Netflix and chill in your team? Yeah. Okay. Got rest. And then you have the name that are in. This is very important because it's kind of your... Identity? It's how you exist after you die. It's how people remember you. Like if something happened to your preserved body, or if your name was not written down somewhere, the ba and the ka would get lost. Oh, no. And so you can see this in the importance of like cartouches. Mm-hmm. Name plates. <laughs> But also... And, like, why it would have been so offensive to erase people's names from stuff? Yeah, like monuments. Right. And so we talked, about, we talked about that in our Tut episode. And then you have your fifth part, your shadow. And this was considered very powerful and also, like, a protective force. And did they mean that it was, like, literally embodied in the shadow? Or yeah. was it just... 
so that it's your like little guardian angel following you wherever you go? In a way. I kind of like that idea like too. That. And the shadow was very important because it could provide shade and shelter, such as like a shadow of a tree mm-hmm. or things like that too. And then in Euripides, he writes that there's kind of this lookalike Helen that's used to trick Paris. Wasn't Helen's whole like deal that she was like the prettiest woman ever and that no one looked like her? Gods can do it with how they want. They do, in fact. And then we go back to our Norse friends. You know they got some crazy oh, shit yeah. to say. Yeah, they have the Vardogr. Are you sure? Something like that. Okay. <laughs> Should I shout it? Angrily and break a mug. A stein. <laughs> and these are kind of similar to our phantasms of the living. Mm. Right. So these are things that would appear shortly before or at the time of a mortal's death. So a person's death and kind of herald their departure to loved ones, I'm guessing, just based on what you said. Yeah, they would kind of, at the least, predict someone kind of coming. But a lot of times it was a, a bad fortune. Mm. And a lot of times these are seen as bad omens. Especially when you start to look at some of the historical cases of famous people running into their doppelgangers. Well, right. That's all I'd ever heard about doppelgangers before we started this episode is that if you meet your doppelganger, you die. And I was like, cool, I'm safe. Maybe. No. But yes, let's look at some of the historical cases. First of all, we have Catherine the Great. And she was. She was great. Great. Catherine? Sure. She was. You're thinking of Anna. Uh... Catherine was very great, and one night her servants alerted her. This is of Mother Russia. Of course. The Tsarina of all the Russians. All the Russians. All the Russians. And one night her servants came in, and they were like, Catherine, we just saw you, and you were in the throne room. How are you here getting ready for bed? What bitch is sitting on my throne? (laughs) So she does. She goes to investigate, never one to be frightened off. And she enters her throne room and sees this double of her, this her, Sitting on her motherfucking throne. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're a badass bitch? What do you do? Slap a bitch. Pop a cap in her ass. Oh my God. She had her century shoot at the doppelganger. Of course. (laughs) There's no record of what happened, but Catherine died shortly thereafter. And then we have Percy Shelley. You know, the guy that was married to Mary Shelley. And wrote Ozymandias. Right. That one. Friend O'Byron, etc. Friend. Right. And all of its... All of it. All of its (laughs) meanings. Sure. Now, he claimed to have met his doppelganger on several occasions. How much opium was involved? Like, all of it. All the rushes, all the opium. All of it, all the time. So, one particularly haunting experience occurred when he was walking on a terrace. And as he's walking along this narrow terrace, he passed a doppelganger who asked him, How long do you mean to be content? Oh my God, that's scary. I know. And people are like, that's not that prophetic of a message. Oh my and God, it, and yes I'm like, it no, is. that's really unsettling. Like, you're happy now. Just wait. Yeah. That's Just. What, that's how I take it. Wait. Or like, if you don't get out and like, like you can't exist in the state very long. In addition to often seeing, running into himself, there was also a friend who said that she once saw Percy pass her window, followed by himself which is very creepy. Now, this all occurred around the time of his death, which was, as is well, chronicled in all English literature, 12th grade textbooks, an accident sailing in 1812. So Mary Shelley is the one who's credited with the account of him beating the doppelganger that says, 
how long do you mean to be content? Oh, she might have read that line. She was such a great writer. Even if she did, it's still a great story. Don't care if it happened. Do not care. Just kudos to Mary Shelley. <laughs> who cares if it's just a story? It's great. So then we have Sir Frederick Carnay Rusk, who was a member of Parliament. And one day a friend noticed that he was seated in Parliament near him, but thought it was odd because he knew that he had been ill and turned to him and said, I hope you're feeling better. And Sir Rask gives no response and just kind of keeps sitting there stone-faced. And he's like, what a dick. And so he kind of turns back, like gathers himself because it's very rude and turns again to say something to him. And he's gone. He's just vanished. Weird. And so he runs out into the lobby to go look for him, but he cannot find him. And he asks around and asks some of the other members of parliament, had they seen him? And they all said, yes, he was just here. Where could he have gone? And so he decides to investigate further and goes to his home and finds that he is indeed homesick with a flu. What happened? Who was it? An imposter. An imposter. Well, no, he says that he was sure it was him because he'd really want... (laughs) Huh? (laughs) He'd wanted to go to the debate. Of course. He'd been very curious about it and wanted to be there. He wanted to... Boo. Boo. (laughs) He wanted to shout at them. Boo. 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 Yes, I love the way they boo in Parliament. It's my favorite. So he was like, sure, I'm sure that was me. I'm not surprised that my spirit stepped out for a moment to attend the debate. His spirit was so willing. (laughs) (laughs) And his flesh was so weak. (laughs) Because he was sick. His family was just sure that this was a terrible omen and there was much clutching of pearls. But when he did return to Parliament after recovering from the flu, he was constantly poked by other members of Parliament. (laughs) Because they were trying to make sure that he was was real. Like a boreal. And so he eventually wrote a letter to a local newspaper apologizing that he did not have the good sense to die at the time that his double was seen in Parliament and saying that he would try to do better next time. That's the most British. Very British. Ever. Sorry I didn't die. Huzzah. 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 So Queen Elizabeth is another notable who allegedly saw her double lying crumpled and corpse-like in her bed shortly before her death. But Queen Elizabeth, in researching this, trying to find a good a good source on it, which was hard to track down, saw lots of shit. She saw, like, the ghost of all the people that she'd had executed. Oh, God. That's frightening. Yeah. Poor Lizzie. I feel so sorry poor, for her. Poor, poor, poor Lizzie. Really? I feel so sorry for her. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Go eat some cake, Sam. <laughs> Go eat some cake in your virginal dress. <laughs> My virginal dress. She's the virgin queen. <laughs> I don't have a virginal dress. So as long as we're on our political doppelganger series, cannot be concluded without a house divided against itself. Who's that? Abraham Lincoln. No one looks like that guy. <laughs> You're right. No You're... one wants to look like that guy. My uncle Tracy oddly looks a lot like Abraham Lincoln. He should get tested for Marfans. <laughs> According to Lincoln himself. It was just after my election in 1860, as some accounts say it was after his nomination, given the date and time, but whatever. And this is a friend recounting his account. So, secondhand. As all these good stories Oh, are. yes, yes, yes. When the news had been coming in thick and fast all day, and there had been a great hurrah, boys, so that I was well tired out. And I went home to rest, throwing myself down on a lounge in my chamber. Opposite where I lay was a bureau with swinging glass upon it. And here, he got up and placed the furniture to illustrate the position, Francis. And looking in the glass, I saw myself reflected, nearly at full length. But my face, I noticed, 
had two separate and distinct images, the tip of the nose of one being about three inches from the tip of the other. I was a little bothered, perhaps startled, and I got up to look in the glass, but the illusion vanished. On lying down again, I saw it a second time, plainer if possible than before, and then I noticed that one of the faces was a little paler, say five shades, than the other, and I got up, and the thing melted away, and I went off, and in the excitement of the hour I forgot about it, nearly but not quite, for the thing once in a while came up and gave me a little pang, as if something uncomfortable had happened. When I went home again that night, I told my wife about it, and a few days afterward, I made the experiment again, when, sure enough, the thing came back again. But I never succeeded in bringing the ghost back after that, though once I tried very industriously to show my wife, who was somewhat worried about it, she thought it was a sign that I was to be elected to a second term in office, but that the paleness of one of the faces was an omen that I should not see life last through the term. That's ominous. Mm-hmm. And a pang, whatever is in his back. He's got this aching headache. I saw a meme the other day that said, Lincoln is doing well in theaters. Historically, this has not been the case. Aww. But Carl Sandberg wrote about it in his biography, and in researching for the inclusion of this story in the biography, he asked John Hay, who we've talked about, and Mary Todd Lincoln, if they ever remembered anything like this happening, and both of them were like, yeah, we do. Totally. Crazy. So that gives it a little bit more validity than a secondhand story. So yeah, Lincoln, the study in duality, dueling natures, the North and South, trying to reunite them, all of these things, sees his double at the hour that he ascends to power. It's quite apropos. Yeah, we'll bet. <laughs> so while there are some ancient traditions of double spirits and things like that, and while there are historical accounts of what we call now a doppelganger. Don't, do- try to, don't try to do German. I'm picking on you. He's trying to sound scary. Doppelganger. The actual term doppelganger and what it kind of personifies in today's mythos is really a modernist one of literary origins from the 1800s. Oh, damn. Are we going to have to talk about some Victorians? Not exactly. So it's not necessarily Victorian because while it did become pervasive... As we're still talking about today, it was very gothic, Mm. very German. And the Germanist Richard Meyer stated that the double themselves are unsure of their identity, are sometimes inhabitants of the earth, and sometimes belong to some unearthly origin. Did you say the Germanist? Yes. This is like 120 years ago. So they are limited in their awareness and perception, he thinks. We're saying that they take different forms. Of course they do. I'm with him. Well, so, you know, this love of this could, of course, just derive from our love of supernatural stories. We do love a spooky story. We do, but we like it even more when it really digs into our psyche. Yeah, for sure. And, and this definitely digs into our own personalities or the universal human problem of relating to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So E.T.A. Hoffman. German. Writer. Said, I imagine my ego as being viewed through a lens. All the forms which move around me are egos. And whatever they do or leave undone vexes me. Whatever they do or leave undone vexes me. Yes, that is very German. (laughs) And he's one of the classical creators of this double projection. In his story, he has a man who sells his shadow to the devil. 
<laughs> what does the devil want with his shadow? If the devil just wants things. Okay. <laughs> I'm bored. I'll have that. The devil is a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same reason mm-hmm. my three-year-old mm-hmm. wants the knife from off the counter. And you also see in Dostoevsky's The Double from 1846. The Double or The Devil? The Double. 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 There's a devil there. You have the poor clerk, the main character, is driven to madness by poverty and unrequited love. Mm. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. And he eventually beholds his own wraith who succeeds in everything in which he has failed. My no. God, that would be hell. Yeah. It's like that kid from high school that you were like too much alike and never got along with, like finding out that they did the things that you said you were going to do when you were a freshman in college. They traveled Europe excessively. I.e. Facebook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But you can look at the source of the devil as this concept of division. Definitely located in Freudian work. This idea of an immortal soul. This idea arising, according to Freud, from infantile narcissism. Or, better, primitive superstition. Which, of course, all of these 1900s German writers keep using primitive and savage. But meaning our mythos. Right, like the primordial ooze of spirituality. Yes. Why didn't they just say that? They do sometimes. Oh. <laughs> they do, actually, believe it or not. So sometimes these primitive ideas make the double no longer appear to be an assurance of immortality, but rather as an uncanny harbinger of death. Okay, so in, they're saying like in the superstition, the soul leaving the body and going off to be immortal and shiny it's is positive. Right, and that's one incarnation of this feeling of double. Right. But in some cases, it could take on a more negative aspect and become a reminder of the fleeting nature of existence. Yes. That's so... It's going to be a positive episode. draining. Okay, I'm with you. No, but you're right, because people around the world believe that the soul is this kind of invisible duplicate and kind of is who we are. Right, your essence... And it's almost a universal belief in some general idea. Right, the specifics change, but the template is there. And Young placed the collective unconscious, this level of instinctual or even deeper at the level where the world is, quote, chemical substance. Ah, Young, you're my dude. Young's my dude, though. He gets it. (laughs) Consciousness, Young claimed, is a recent acquisition and is therefore menaced by our various dangers. One danger being a dissociation of consciousness, a splitting of the psyche. And, you know, we've talked about how Jung talks about these archetypes, these things that we can project into the world and these different parts of ourselves that can take on these kind of ancient mythological motifs. Right, tarot cards. It's like the easiest way for me to think of it. I think of... You know, if you lay out a card for someone and they're like, I know what that means without having studied it, it's because on some instinctual level, we all respond to these symbols. Like, these are pictorial representations of a lot of the Jungian archetypes. Right. They were made to do that. Mm-hmm. They were made to be that way. Yeah. And one of these archetypes is the shadow. And he has nothing good to say, I suppose. Well, you know, we'll get into him a little more later. But it can be this, this disturbing influence on the ego. So many things can. Sort of a second personality, as he called it. Ugh. He says, the shadow goes by many familiar names. The disowned self, the lower self, the dark twin or brother in Bible and myth, the double, repressed self, alter ego, id. When we come face to face with our darker side, we use metaphors to describe these shadow encounters. Meeting our demons, wrestling with the devil, descent to the underworld, dark night, 
of the soul, midlife crisis. Oh, Young loved to write about the midlife crisis. I think he must have had like a second life crisis that lasted until he died. All of those metaphors are used way too often and haphazardly, but there's a reason they survive. I don't know. I'm a big believer in cliches stay in use because at some point in your life, you're going to reach for something to say and that will fall out of your mouth (laughs) because it's just true in that moment. (laughs) No, in that moment, it's just true. No, people deal in cliches for a number of reasons, but I'm just saying like, even if you're a very thoughtful person and you go through your vocabulary carefully, eventually there will come a time in your life when you're like, I need to express a thought and you will hear yourself saying something so cliche. Yeah. And you know, so this idea of the shadow in this kind of motif form is very present in a lot of mythology Mm -hmm. and especially how we kind of project it and interact with it and how it is a representation of the soul. So let us discuss a Swedish legend about a pretty girl. Lovely. That was her name. No, it wasn't. (laughs) It was not. But she does fear the loss of her beauty through childbirth. Her fear sent her before her wedding day to a mysterious old woman. Of course. Who magically rids her of her seven children that she was destined to bear. Can we do this retroactively? (laughs) No. No. Have you tried? Yeah. Okay. Ask every mysterious old woman I meet. And they're like, bitch, get away from me. I'm trying to buy cabbage. So seven years of marriage with no children follows this exchange. And her beauty remains constant through these seven years. And we all know that seven years would completely ravage beauty. Like, there's no way you're staying pretty. Especially seven kids. That would do it. Until one night in the moonlight, her husband notices... That she has no shadow. That would freak me out. <laughs> when confronted, our lovely maiden, I guess she's not a maiden anymore, our lovely matron, confesses what she has done, mysterious woman and all, and becomes an outcast, shunned by her society. For seven years, she endures harsh punishment, punitive measures. Penitence. Mm-hmm. Aging. No! Ah! But she's absolved by a hermit. Oh, good. Convenient. I mean, hermits, they always come by at the best times. And dies reconciled with God after the seven shades of her unborn children have appeared to her in a chapel. Oh my God, that's creepy too. It's all creepy. There's really not any kind of, well, that's a nice story. (laughs) She had the seven good years. I looked great for seven years. And then he was all like, why don't you have a shadow? Just shows you how it's a legend. (laughs) I am. Because I would have been like, I guess I'm just that thin. (laughs) You're right, honey. Would you like something to drink and eat? Conversation over. (laughs) So in this, you have to take the idea that she does not have a shadow to mean that she does not have a soul. Yeah, it's like, did she sell her soul? I mean, I think, yeah, she probably sold her soul. I mean, when mysterious old women and devils show up, they want things, and usually it's your soul. So this is not the only example of shadow lore and mythology, of course, There's an entire section on it in the Golden Bough. There's an entire section on everything in the Golden Bough. Like, that is my paperweight book. It's literally on our nightstand. In Egypt, of course, they mention the shadow as that protective barrier. You're right. And in many cultures in the Solomon Islands, anyone who steps on the king's shadow will be punished. Don't know how they'll be punished. Don't want to know. Nothing good. Nothing good. Now, there are many islands along the equator, such as Amboyona, who do not leave their house at noon. And according to Fraser, this is when their shadow disappears and they're afraid of losing their souls along with their shadows. 
that would be very inconvenient. I mean, Peter Pan feared the same thing. <clears throat> You're right. I just need to sew it on. Everyone knows that. You can't use soap to attach your shadow, stupid boy. <sighs> but in Germany, Austria, and Yugoslavia, on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, whoever casts no shadow on the wall of a room by lamplight, or whose shadow is headless, guess, just guess. You're dead. You're dead. You're, You're dead. dead in a year. Yeah. Yeah. Also, stepping on one's own shadow is a sign of guess. How does one do that? <laughs> I don't know. It must not happen often, or it would mean that you die. <laughs> were easy to do that's not what it would mean so in the island of Wattah there are shaman who can make a man ill by stabbing his shadow with a pike or hacking it with a sword I guess you'd have to be pretty close that's what I said yeah, yeah I have a theory <laughs> that it's just the you know wind up ah you know like when you're reaching yeah. up with your stick you're or actually, follow through yeah <laughs> <laughs> follow through you got it in India after Shankara had destroyed the Buddhists in India, it is said that he journeyed to Nepal, where he had some differences of opinion with the Grand Lama. Thanks for that, Fraser. <laughs> to prove his supernatural powers, Shankara soared into the air. But as he mounted up, the Grand Lama, perceiving his shadow swaying and wavering on the ground, struck his knife into it, and down fell Sankara and broke his neck. Oh, damn. It's like a meetup of the... The Wata legend in Icarus. <laughs> Don't show off. <laughs> in the Banks Islands, there's some stones of a remarkably long shape, which go by the name of Eating Ghost, because a certain powerful and dangerous ghost are believed to lodge in them. And so if a man's shadow, or I assume a woman's also, falls on these stones, the ghost will draw out his soul from him, and he will die. So if you got these stones, and you need, you know, a way to keep yourself safe. You could just... Drag one around with you? Put him in front of your house. Oh, fine. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess you could drag one around with you, but your shadow would probably cross it. <gasps> You're right. I'm and I don't think it's going to be nice. Today. I don't think it's going to be nice because it's your pet. <laughs> it's my pet rock. Look, he's smiling. Did you put googly eyes on the eating ghost? <laughs> he's a happy eating ghost. Nom, nom, nom. At a funeral in China, when the lid is about to be placed on a coffin... Most of the bystanders who are present, with the exception of the nearest kin, will step back a few paces or even go into another room. For a person's health is believed to be endangered by allowing his shadow to be enclosed in a coffin. So the Mangayans tell a story of a mighty warrior, Tukatawa, whose strength waxed and waned with the length of his shadow. That is really cool concept. I love it. Would make the best comic book ever. Oh, yeah. That'd be so It's so good. visual, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the morning, when his shadow was longest, his strength was greatest. But as you get closer to noon, noon his strength would... Wane. Yeah. You're onto it. And then at the end of the day... Strong again. Strong again. That would be a really cool superhero. It really would. Like, super fun to illustrate. Unfortunately... Someone was observant. Shouldn't have been bragging. I don't think he was bragging. I think he just watched. I was like, you know, around noon every day. He's always napping by his ghost stone. <laughs> his googly eyes just stare into my soul. And so, unfortunately, Tukatawa was slain at noon. So, also, in addition to this making an awesome comic book, which it would. Yeah. It would make the worst video game level ever. Our good one. No, you'd have to like figure it out. Can you imagine like how yeah, soon? Yeah, it's a great puzzle. You'd be on the walkthrough in like five seconds. <laughs> so in the Fiji Islands, the term shadow is yalo yalo, 
which is a duplication of the word soul. And there's a belief that every person has two souls, a dark one, which exists in his shadow and goes to the equivalent of hell, and a bright one, which exists in his reflection on the surface of water or in a glass, which remains nearby his place of death. And this is also sort of a repeated motif in Greenland as well as with the Algonquin people. And it, to me, sounds very similar to the Egyptian mythology. Yeah, more than just those cultures, for sure. Mm -hmm. So we said that the idea of of doppelgangers is a very literary device. So we're going to tell some fantastic stories on this episode. Yes. Uh, Some great literary depictions of the doppelganger and the different ways it can be presented. And of course we've been talking about shadows. So what better story should we tell than the shadow? The Eisner shadow? Another comic book, but no. (laughs) Wait. Yes. Hans Christian Andersen shadow? Yes. Oh my, you know it's going to be crazy. Right, and if you've listened to our Mermaid episode. Which you should, because the Hans Christian Andersen bio on there is worth the journey. You're going to be going, oh, 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 as you hear the story. So, we have a young scholar that has traveled to the south. The hottest countries were, quote, people are usually as brown as mahogany. Stop it. Racist. So the northern scholar could not stand the heat. So oh, he sweet little Lily. himself in the house all day. Mm-hmm. This learned man from the cold region was young as well as clever, but it seemed to him as if he were sitting in an oven, and he became quite exhausted and weak and grew so thin that his shadow shriveled up and became much smaller than it had been at home. The sun took away even what was left of it, and he saw nothing of it till the evening after sunset. Now, on the evenings, he's able to come out of the house and onto the balcony to see the varied life in the street. So he's observing life, but not actually partaking in it. Exactly. Yeah, seeing nothing. 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 Oh, you just wait. Now, as he's sitting on his balcony, he notices this house across from him. Mm Mm-hmm. One house only, which is just opposite to the one in which the foreign learned man lived, formed a contrast to all this, all this life on the streets. For it was quite still, and yet somebody dwelt there. For flowers stood in the balcony, blooming beautifully in the hot sun. Therefore, someone must be in the house to do this. The doors leading to the balcony were half-opened in the evening, and although in the front room all was dark, music could be heard from the interior of the house. Now almost in a dream, our scholar fleetingly sees this beautiful, shining woman across the way on the balcony. Mm -hmm. So one evening, the foreigner is sitting on his balcony, A light was burning in his room just behind him. It was quite natural, therefore, that his shadow should fall on the wall of the opposite house, so that as he sat amongst the flowers on his balcony, when he moved, his shadow moved also. I think my shadow is the only living thing to be seen opposite, said the learned man. See how pleasantly it sits among the flowers. The door is only ajar. The shadow ought to be clever enough to step in and look about him, and then to come back and tell me what he has seen. You can make yourself useful in this way said he jokingly. Be so good as to step in now, will you? And then he nodded to the shadow, and the shadow nodded in return. Mm. Now go, but don't stay away altogether. So he's he's bossy. He enjoys foliage and flora. So the foreigner stood up, and the shadow on the opposite balcony stood up also. The foreigner turned around, the shadow turned. And if anyone had observed, they might have seen it go straight into the half-open door of the opposite balcony. The next morning, he went out to take his coffee and read the newspaper. How is this? He exclaimed as he stood in the sunshine. I've lost my shadow. Oh no, his soul's gone. So it really did go away yesterday evening, and it has not returned. This is very annoying. Oh god. 
don't know if it's the translation or if it's actually Anderson's voice. I don't care. It's amazing. So he had heard in his home country about men without shadows. Well, it was from the north. Mm -hmm. And knew he shouldn't speak of it. So at first, to him, the loss of his shadow is no big deal. And he has a new shadow, but it's it's much smaller. Is it like baby Groot's shadow? Does it like boogie when he's not looking? (laughs) I can only hope so. I think it's more supposed to be like a sad shadow. No, it's baby Groot's shadow. He's just too sad to notice it. But he does go on in his life to write some beautiful, lovely books about beautiful and lovely, amazing things. Hmm. Years later, there's a knock at the door. Come in, said he, but no one came. He opened the door, and there stood before him a man so remarkably thin that he felt seriously troubled at his appearance. He was, however, very well dressed and looked like a gentleman. To whom have I the honor of speaking, said he. I hoped you would recognize me. I have gained so much that I have a body of flesh and clothes to wear. You never expected to see me in such a condition. Do you not recognize your old shadow? (laughs) So the first shadow has become increasingly wealthy, and he asked to buy his freedom. The scholar says there's no need. So the shadow demands silence about his past, tells him he plans to get married, and they shake hands. Between man and shadow. So, of course, the man sent the shadow into the other house to see what was in there. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And report back, which he's very tardy in doing. And so he asks, what happened? Tell me what happened. Do you know that in the house opposite you lived the most glorious creature in the world? It was poetry. I remained there for three weeks, and it was more like 3,000 years before I read All that has ever been written in poetry or prose. And I may say, in truth, that I saw and learnt everything. What was the appearance of the inner rooms? Was it there like a cool grove or like a holy temple? Were there chambers like a starry sky seen from the top of a high mountain? It was all that you described, but I did not go quite in. I remained in the twilight of the anteroom, but I was in a very good position... I could see and hear all that was going on in the court of poetry. But what did you see? Did the gods of ancient times pass through the rooms? Did old heroes fight their battles over again? Were there lovely children at play who related their dreams? If you had gone in there, you would not have remained a human being, whereas I became one. And at the same moment, I became aware of my inner being, my inborn affinity to the nature of poetry. So then the shadow relates what he did after he left the anteroom of the court of poetry and how he became wealthy. I ran about the streets in the moonlight. I drew myself up to full height upon the walls, which tickled my back very pleasantly. I ran here and there. I looked through the highest windows into the rooms and over the roofs. I looked in and I saw what nobody else could see or indeed ought to see. In fact, it is a bad world, and I would not care to be a man, but that men are of some importance. I saw the most miserable things going on between husbands and wives and parents and children, sweet, incomparable children. I wrote directly to the persons themselves, and great alarm arose in all the towns I visited. They have so much fear of me, and yet how dearly they love me. So the shadow is able to use the secret knowledge that he gains to gain wealth. to Blackmail people. Yeah, he's blackmailing people. 
He gains money, clothes, women. So the shadow leaves with the promise that the scholar will not tell the secret. Days and years went by, and the shadow came again. How are you going on now? Ah, said the learned man, I am writing about the true, the beautiful, and the good. But no one cares to hear anything about it. I am quite in despair, for I take it to heart very much. That is what I never do. And the shadow then offers for the man to go on a trip with him and to act as his shadow. The scholar says, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But sorrow and trouble pursued him. And what he said about the good, the beautiful, and the true was of as much value to most people as a nutmeg would be to a cow. How much value is that? I don't think it's much. Okay. At length, he fell ill. You really look like a shadow, people said to him. And then a cold shudder would pass over him. For he had his own thoughts on the subject. The shadow does return, and he eventually agrees to go on a trip with him to the baths. Because remember, what's our shadow trying to do? So he wants to get married. He wants to to win his woman. Yeah, and so the shadow feels that he needs a beard to do this. (laughs) Like, I didn't write it. So they must go to the baths. Okay. You go to the baths to get a beard? Oh, it's a healing bath. Okay. At the bath, they meet a beautiful princess. Okay. It is a fairy tale. I'm sorry. <laughs> I forget. It's so creepy. And now her real disease consisted in being too sharp-sighted. No, really. I noticed too much. No, really. It drives everyone crazy. No, really. It's a curse. So she saw at once that the newcomer was very different to everyone else. They say that he's here to make his beard grow. But I know the real cause. He is unable to cast a shadow. So being so sharp-sighted, she confronts the shadow, who retorts that of course he has a shadow. Have you not seen my constant companion? How is this? Really? I am cured. Good job, Hans. (laughs) So again, a fairy tale. So guess where they go? To the ball. And guess what they do? Dance and and fall in love. Yes. But she is... A sharp-sighted young lady. And so she decides to test his well-grounded knowledge. Those questions are so simple. My shadow could answer them. And so she goes to speak to the scholar and spoke to him of the sun and the moon, of the green forest, and of people near home and far off. And the learned man conversed with her pleasantly and sensibly. So. Did they fall in love? No. Oh. I thought that's where it was going to. <laughs> no, this is Hans. This oh, is all Hans. Hans. Nothing's going to... Bitter. so bitter. So bitter. Is she going to explode in the light or something? No. Okay. (laughs) And so, with this information... She agrees to marry the shadow. She agrees to marry the shadow? Of course. Of course. Okay. Now, the shadow knows that this is going to be a problem because his lovely new fiancé, who is quite sharp-sighted, would recognize if he suddenly did not have his shadow with him, mm, mm. i.e. the scholar. Right. So he has a proposition. Listen, my friend. Now that I am as fortunate and as powerful as a man can be, I will do something unusually good for you. You shall live in my palace and drive with me in the royal carriage and have a hundred thousand dollars a year. But you must allow everyone to call you a shadow. You must never venture to say that you have been a man. And once a year, when I sit on my balcony in the sunshine, you must lie at my feet, as becomes a shadow to do. For I must tell you, I'm going to marry the princess, and our wedding will take place this evening. 
Not really. That is too ridiculous. I can not and will not submit to such folly. So You're this, lost, asshole. <laughs> so the scholar threatens to go to the princess and expose him, but the shadow, right, has the guards waiting, mm. and knew the man wouldn't agree, and throws him in prison. Now, when the shadow goes to the princess, he's visibly shaking. He tells her that his shadow has gone mad. He tells her, My shadow fancies that he's become a real man. He's gone mad. Poor shadow. That is very unfortunate for him. It would really be a good deed to free him from his frail existence. And the story ends. In the evening, the whole town was illuminated, and cannons fired boom, and the soldiers presented arms. It was indeed a grand wedding. The princess and the shadow stepped out on the balcony to show themselves, and to receive one cheer more. But the learned man heard nothing of all these festivities, for he had already been executed. Damn, Hans! The end. God damn! (laughs) It's a fairy tale. Remember how happy the real Little Mermaid ends? She becomes a daughter of the air, and if you are bad, you make her suffer or something. It's awful. Yeah, every time a child cries, she like... Loses her wings? I don't know. But I look at the symbolism in this story. Okay, so brief recap on Hans Christian Andersen's bio. He was from the poorest of the poor class and decided that he would make something of himself by making up fairy tales for a living. Spoiler alert, they're all severely depressing fairy tales. But they were popular at the time. Right, he did receive acclaim and people did love his stories, but he never felt truly accepted by the upper class. He felt as if he were kind of a shadow. A shadow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he attached himself to very powerful people and would kind of throw himself at them and be like, oh, I'm basically Tinkerbell. I need applause to live. And they would tire of him. And he is like, I would lie at your feet and well, pretend to be a shadow if you would just let me be near you. So this is kind of like wish fulfillment projection stuff happening here. Yeah, we also see like the learned man who writes about all the good truth and beauty, which I'm sure he saw himself doing. Wow. Yeah. I know. (laughs) And he is completely... Not appreciated, overlooked. And even gets sick and withers away, looking like a shadow himself. Okay, so I really do have a question about the plot of the story, which I know I'm going to regret asking because, like, really, should you question this? Should you question this? (sighs) But how did poetry make the shadow so bad? Ah, but did the shadow ever truly enter the court of poetry? Oh, no, he stayed in the the lobby. Stayed in the anteroom. He (laughs) never truly became part of it because he feared that the light from the room would destroy him. So he hid in the dark. And became a shadow creeping on the walls, seeing the dark side of humanity and embracing it. And using it against people in order to make himself more powerful by showing people the darker parts of themselves. (gasps) Damn, it really is good. It's good. God. And so you have these two dueling sides of a personality, of an ego, where you have the one person that wants to dedicate his whole life to the good and the truth and the beauty. Bunnies. And the other that creeps around on people's walls and blackmails them. And even though he thinks that he has become human by embracing poetry he never actually does Mm. how he really becomes human is creeping around he's still a shadow and by gaining this wealth 
by gaining all of these physical worldly mm-hmm, possessions and experiences okay well there was more depth there than i wanted there to be <laughs> sorry but it's no good it's just a classic example of a, a shadow split a doppelganger of this man who does eventually lead to his, his downfall the scholar's downfall well i think the scholar's downfall is not being bold enough to cross and enter himself Sending a shadow to yeah, do the work. Right. Yeah. And that's the moment where he chooses his path. It's where they split. Because mm-hmm. he won't embrace the darker parts of himself and take the risk. It's very, it's very strong metaphor. Way more thought-provoking than, I, than anything with it. And the cannons fired boom in the last and paragraph. He was excused. He didn't get to go to the party because he was dead. Thank you, Han. Jesus Christ. So on a rank, a follower of Freud wrote extensively about doppelgangers and the double and he said that i am very well aware of the division in our consciousness everyone has felt it more or less intently that division in which one sees one's own person passing by like a shadow in all of the shapes in which he ever existed so the shadow is sort of like the absence of light it is not an image of yourself it's sort of a byproduct of you do you think that there's Something to be said for like a reflection, like a mirror image. Do you think that? Well, I think that that's probably what most people just automatically think of. It's like this is a mirror reflection. This is a like Abraham Lincoln's story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, mirrors have their own superstitions, their own folklore, their own power. Of course, and reflection especially. I mean, before there are mirrors, you think see things like narcissists gazing into the pool at his own reflection. So enamored with it that he can't move. Lots of withering away associated with seeing yourself. Uh, you have Alice going through the looking glass. Right, into a topsy-turvy world that makes no sense. Everyone who's ever attended a slumber party knows that you can call Bloody Mary to hang out in your mirror. Yeah, and, and lots of mythological evil creatures do not have reflections. Like vampires. Of course. Because they don't have a soul. And there are other superstitions, which are always fun to talk about, such as... This one, a woman who gives birth and looks in a mirror too soon afterward, will see ghostly faces peek out from behind her reflection. No, it's no, that's creepy. It's creepy AF. Like, I, I mean, like, like, it's a big trend now to have mirrors in delivery rooms so you can watch the birth. <gasps> watch the birth and the shades. I don't like any of that. <laughs> And then we talked about the Halloween episode last year about how you would use people would use their reflections and candlelight to see their future husbands behind them. You're supposed to brush your hair. There are several different ones. Yeah, but this is my favorite. It's like brush your hair and you'll see your husband appear over your shoulder. Super fun. But from three thousand to one thousand BC, ancient Greeks practice catapromancy, where they would look into shallow bowls filled with water to predict the future. And the Romans called it miratorium. It's also called, just generally, when you look into some kind of void, scrying. Scrying is crystal balls. Right. And also mirrors. So, of course, this is a means to predict the future. You're looking into something that does not have definite shape. You're not, like, looking out at the horizon. You're focusing in on a small amount of space, first of all. A reflecting pool. Or a crystal ball or a mirror. And you can discern and divine certain things by letting your conscious mind kind of drop off and just sensing what's in the mirror bowl 
ball. If one of these mirrors slipped and broke, the person holding the ball had no future, or the future was so bad that the gods were sparing the person from knowing what lay in store. Thanks, gods. I'm cool with that. So this may be the origin of why breaking a mirror could bring bad luck. Maybe. No one knows the actual origin. <laughs> like, some people think it may be related to how expensive mirrors were uh-huh. back originally. Like when they had to put silver on glass. Yes. And that if, like, a servant would break it, they would have to work seven years off to pay for it. Seems oddly specific. <laughs> so in the American South, there was a counter charm should you accidentally whoopsie-doopsie break a mirror. You could hold it under flowing water for seven hours. What would that do? Fix it. Reverse it. The reason it can put it down, flip it, and reverse it is because it could release the soul that had been captured in the mirror, which would normally be seeking revenge on you for capturing him. Of course. Now, there are other counter charms should you not have seven hours to go stand in, I guess, a creek. What lady of leisure does not? I guess you could order someone to do it. <laughs> oh, God. That sounds like it would not lead to anything good. <laughs> it would be like, come, spirits. <laughs> oh, no. Come. I'm going to add a fear. So you could Break some more mirrors. Bang. All I can think about with this is the skeleton key. That movie with that Kate Hudson. It was like underappreciated. Underappreciated movie. You could also bury the shard of glass. You could touch it to a grave. Oh, God. Or you could, you know, the old standby. Throw salt over your shoulder? Yeah, that's the one. In Chinese lore, it's believed that a mirror can scare away an evil spirit because it would be frightened by its own reflection and would run away. But a broken mirror could not protect you. In Serbia, mirrors are put in coffins to keep the dead from rising. Oh, good. That's weird. Yeah, I like it. Me too. The Zulu people will not look into a dark pool because they think there's a beast in it which will take away their reflections so that they die. But the Basutas say that crocodiles have the power to take away a reflection, which of course would kill someone. And they do this by dragging their reflection down underwater. So if any member of this group dies suddenly from no apparent cause, it's an aneurysm. I'm just kidding. No, a crocodile must have taken a shadow as he crossed a stream. I'm going to take a reflection-stealing crocodile over a ghost-eating rock. I think that's like a rock, paper, scissors. Basically, like we need one more and yes. then we have a new game. We'll find another one. <laughs> okay. Let's just wait. So one of my favorite funeral traditions of the antebellum South, because there are like a bajillion. All of them. <laughs> a bajillion. They really love them some death, is the covering of mirrors. Now, you may be familiar with this if you have not gone on a weird plantation tour where they were doing mourning, which they do. You can go tour a plantation while they have mourning garb up. Super fun. I was forced to do really? this as a child. Like they have like special, like is it on Halloween? No, just whenever. It's like every second Tuesday? Yeah. Okay. More that. It's more that. They might have a coffin out. They would have like all the hair jewelry. This explains so much. <laughs> like my mom was like, let's go to our plantation. I was like, if we can go do that one. You know, they have all the black crepe up and they'll have all the mirrors covered. So if you did not get forced into this as a child, you may be familiar with the practice of covering mirrors from Jewish Shiva. Are they related? It's all related. I'll just wait. Yeah. There's a quote in the cultural context and expressions of death ways in the U.S. South. Death in a small southern town is like death no other place. Except that it is. How dare you refute the southern quarterly. (laughs) 
I did it. In at least one way. It's like everywhere else or a lot of other places, a shocking number of places in that in a house of mourning, the mirrors are covered. Now, covering the mirror in a house of mourning is a common practice during Shiva. It is defined by a Jewish magazine, which I will not be refuting. When people must sit Shiva in the house of mourning, they are, in essence, paying their respects to the deceased. Shiva is a week that is given over to the mourning of the deceased. We do not work during that week. We do not indulge in luxuries. We reflect on the merits and deeds of the person who has died. I like that. I do, too. I do, too, a lot. And to understand the roots of this practice, the covering of mirrors at the time of Shiva, you must understand the purposes of mirrors in everyday life. We look at ourselves, though. Absolutely. Definitionally, mirrors are for your outsides. Right. Check our appearance for relief. But life, essence of life, what has gone is purely internal. The external components remain the same no matter what is going on in your mind. You might have a twinge of an expression on your face or something like that, but essentially you're the same. Even following death for a few minutes anyway, you're still the same. Your physical outsides are... Right, after all of the parts that make us us leave. Right. Depending on culture. Right. So in theory, the contemplation of the person who has died should focus on their internal nature, not their appearance. And this is sort of a reminder of that. As we recall the particular fine qualities of the person, we assimilate a small part of that person into our essence as well. So they cover the mirrors to kind of reinforce that focusing more on the internal than the external. By truly focusing on the essence of that person, something of them will be incorporated into you as well. I like that better than the ghosts might be captured. (laughs) I know, it's good. I'm going to read you another thing about Lincoln, because why not? At the time that his body was lying in state in the East Room of the White House, the windows on either end of the room were draped with black barrage, the frames of the mirrors between the windows, as well as those over the marble mantels, being heavily draped with the same material. The heavy gildings of the frames were entirely enshrouded, while the plates of the mirrors were covered with white crepe. So while Abraham Lincoln of doppelganger fame was lying in state at the White House, which is a creepy thing to do, anyway. Just at a house in general. <laughs> what do you mean? That's what they do throughout the South, traditionally. Oh, but the wakes at the house. You just talked about it. <laughs> wakes at the house. It's creepy. I would feel like they were never going away. If they get trapped in the mirror, they won't. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you know I'd me- you know I'd mess it up. <laughs> but they did cover the mirrors at the White House. This is really when you see a lot of death superstitions like recorded very well in political history because Mary Todd Lincoln loved her some seances and was kind of a bit of a spiritualist and you get a lot of like very high mourning customs because Abraham Lincoln actually dies in the White House. Proto-Victorian. <laughs> right. True. So it was common practice in England and the United States during the 19th century to cover mirrors. Now if you like do a cursory search, you'll find that people put it further back and in different parts of the world. Really, nowhere was it more prevalent and more widely practiced than 19th century U.S. and England, because this was the height of ritual mourning. Now, in Germany and Belgium, a white cloth was used because it was thought if a person saw his or her image in a mirror after the death of a person in the household, that person would die shortly. And in China, mirrors were turned upside down or covered. And according to Reginald Fleming Johnson, who wrote in 1910, the dead man happens to notice a reflection of himself in the glass. He will be much horrified to find that he's become a ghost. 
and much disappointed with his own appearance as such. Every mirror has mysterious faculty of, of invisibly retaining and storing up everything it has reflected on its surface, and that if anything so ill-omened as a corpse or a ghost were to pass before it, the mirror would thenceforth become a permanent radiator of bad luck. Oh, it's just absorbing all the evil. All? No, everything. Everything. Why would you have a mirror in your house? I don't know. I want to go break them. Let's go break them. Oh, wait, that's bad luck. That's bad luck. No. no. You have to bury them face down. So the dead won't rise? Something like that. All right. So... Fraser, again of Golden Bow fame, says that the Sunni Mohammedans of Bombay cover with a cloth the mirror in the room of a dying man and do not remove it until the corpse is carried out for burial. In a famous needlework by Prudence Punderson. Of course. Did you make that up? I did not. Are you sure? I did not. She was an enslaved woman who has some of the most famous folk art in American history. She created a work called The First, Second, and Last Scene of Mortality. And it displays from right to left Punderson's birth, her adulthood, and her death. And it shows above the coffin of Punderson a mirror draped with a white cloth. And since she died in like 1780, it shows that there are deep roots in America of this custom. Now, in 1964, a folklorist went to North Carolina and was like, why y'all do that? Why'd you do that? <laughs> they're like, oh. Why'd you go to North Carolina? No, no, not that. Oh, okay. <laughs> No, he asked people, why you do that? Like, why don't you cover the mirrors and people die? And he got various explanations. (laughs) Mirrors must be covered. Otherwise, whoever looks into a mirror will become seriously sick within a year. Then, if you see a corpse's image in the mirror, there will be another death in the same house in less than a month. So they're on a tighter schedule. Or the soul of a dead person wanders around for three days and it should not see itself in the mirror. If this happens, the mirror will tarnish and make a picture of the dead. Like in the Myrtles. Like in the Myrtles. No matter how many times you try to have it fixed, it'll always come back. Because that's how ghosts work. It's true. Reverend George Lowe went to the Orkney Islands and was like, hey, why y'all do that? And they were like, I don't know. Like That's his official ethnography. Good job. Did that get published? Yeah. Cool. Not just that. It was just like... Oh, no, no, just that. It's like a <laughs> blank paper and it's like exploration of the folkloric and ethnographic trends of the Orkney Islands related to the covering of the mirrors. When asked the informants in the Orkney Islands why they would cover the mirrors, I was curtly told, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Thank you. It came to me in a dream. Citation. So... Well, modern Judaism continues the practice of covering mirrors, there are some Kabbalistic writings about the covering of mirrors that are a shade darker, if you will. And so one thought is that you should never pray before a mirror because it will break your concentration and you should be praying at Shiva. And then it can also be interpreted as you bowing to yourself if you're in front of a mirror, which would defeat the purpose of praying. Of course. Right. And then, you know, we... Avoid the appearance of vanity while mourning the deceased. But the Talmud mentions that mourners need special protection from evil spirits, and looking into mirrors not only leads to arrogance, but also gives power to evil spirits. Evil spirits are commonly found in homes where death has occurred, and during Shiva, spirits can most easily attach themselves to reflections in mirrors, so they must be covered or turned around. Now, a few years ago, a theologian named Zviron set out to trace the origins of the practice of covering mirrors in Judaism. 
Did he get more than enough? I don't know. Yeah, he did. Good. And he discovered that the earliest rabbinical mention of the practice dates to the 18th century. The ritual of overturning mirrors was originally thought to be related to the practice of overturning beds in households where a death had occurred. Wait, why would they do that? So man is created in the image of God and usually conceived and born in bed. Right. And so when he dies because of original sin and, you know, completes the reversal, we turn the bed over. Okay. And so some people think that the overturned bed was just replaced with the overturned mirror, but both acts as reminders that intimate relations are suspended during Shiva. Furthermore, mirrors are an expression of vanity and should not be used in a house of mourning. So Colin Dickey says in his article on Hazlitt, the covered mirror is a gesture with curious ambivalence, bearing traces of both ritual and superstition a way of honoring the dead and warding them off, a solemn vow that hides within the fear of something going wrong. It's such an interesting idea of the reflection and how it can represent so many things. It's funny because there's a quality of that kid's afraid of his own shadow about it. Like the we're just all a little bit more vulnerable and maybe we're all a little bit afraid of our own shadows. And that's, you know, repeated in reflections. And maybe that's just, it's just too much to bear when we're mourning. I don't know. It's so interesting to me that so many cultures have this practice. It was very common in the American South and slave culture as well. Do you think that's where it came from in the American South? Or was it from a a Jewish influence? It looks like the Jewish influence came more from other traditions. It looks like it was more the bed for a long time, and then it became the mirror. It was like they were trying to give credence to this practice that was already going on, kind of incorporate it and legitimize it in the practice of Shiva. So it does not seem to be a custom that is Jewish in origin. Older than that. It's older. But ties in with some of their more ancient traditions. Right. Interesting. But, you know, the reflection, as we've talked about, is it can represent the soul and the self and the external, but maybe also the internal as well. And so we return back to our literary tradition of the doppelganger. Yes, let's. And let us go to another fantastic and, and quite flawed author, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe. Ah, yes. William Wilson. This is one of his earlier short stories and definitely less known. Let me call myself for the present, William Wilson. That is not my real name. That name has already been the cause of the horror, of the anger of my family. Men usually become bad by degrees, but I let all goodness fall for me in a single moment into the blackest evil ever known. That's a hell of an opener, dude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, really? It's good. Don't you want to know what happens next? Let's find out. Death is near me and its coming has softened my spirit. I desire in passing through this dark valley the understanding of other men. I wish them to believe that I've been in some way in the power of forces beyond human control. So our narrator describes his early life in school. He was a hot-tempered, petulant child. In truth, the hotness of my character and my desire to lead and command soon separated me from the others. Slowly, I gained control over all who were not greatly older than myself. Over all except one. This exception was a boy who, though not of my family, had the same name as my own, William Wilson. This boy was the only one who ever dared to say he did not believe all I told him and who would not follow my commands. This troubled me greatly. (laughs) 
This troubled me greatly. Of course. I tried to make the others think that I didn't care. The truth was that I felt afraid of him. I had to fight to appear equal with him. Indeed, no one else saw the battle going on between us. All his attempts to stop me and what I wanted to do were made when no one else could see or hear us. This other child had entered school the same time as him, had the same name, and even the same birthday. This seemed a strange and wonderful thing. Now Wilson continued his attempts to command me while I continued my attempts to rule him. This strange appearance of friendship, although we were not friends, caused no doubt the strangeness of the battle between us. So the narrator notices these odd coincidences. This is that he always hated his name because it was so common. Mm. I knew I would have to hear the name each day a double number of times. The other William Wilson would always be near. The other boys often thought that my actions and my belongings were his and his were mine. So this is like being pissed off that you're not the only Ashley in your class. (gasps) But Poe style. But Poe style. (laughs) Okay. Nothing could trouble me more deeply, although I carefully tried to keep everyone from seeing it, than to hear anyone say anything about the likeness between us, of mind or of body, or of anything else. But in truth... I had no reason to believe that this likeness was ever noticed by our schoolfellows. He saw it, and as clearly as I, that I knew well. He discovered that in this likeness, he could always find a way of troubling me. This proved the more than usual sharpness of his mind. His method, which was to increase the likeness between us, lay both in words and in actions. And he followed his plan very well indeed. It was easy enough to have clothes like mine. He easily learned to walk and move as I did. His voice, of course, could not be as loud as mine. But he made his manner of speaking the same. It seemed that I was the only one who noticed it. I was the only one who saw Wilson's strange and knowing smiles. He's copying me. (laughs) He is, guys. Ruining the ambiance. I'm sorry. He seemed to think he was better and wiser than I. He would try to guide me. He would often try to stop me from doing things that I had planned. So becoming frustrated, our narrator decides to go to the other William Wilson's room in the night to cause him harm. (gasps) That's escalated. (laughs) Having reached his room, I entered without a sound, leaving the light outside. I advanced a step and listened. He was asleep. I turned, took the light, and again went to the bed. I looked down upon his face. The coldness of ice filled my whole body. My knees trembled. My whole spirit was filled with horror. I moved the light nearer to his face. Was this... This the face of William Wilson? I saw indeed that it was, but I trembled as if with sickness, as I imagined that it was not. What was there in his face to trouble me so? I looked, and my mind seemed to turn in circles in the rush of my thoughts. It was not like this, surely not like this, that he appeared in the daytime. The same name, the same body, the same day that we came to school? And then there was this use of my way of walking, my manner of speaking. Was it in truth humanly possible? That what I now saw was the result, and the result only, of his continued efforts to be like me? As I stood looking down at his sleeping form and face, I might have been looking at myself in a looking glass. I'm beginning to feel a bit like this is an unreliable narrator. Maybe so. He's on his deathbed. I'm beginning to feel a bit like this is written by Edgar Allan Poe, and we shouldn't take anything this man says without a grain of salt thrown over our shoulder after we break our mirrors. I think that's right. So after this terrifying incident, he leaves his old school to never enter it again. He then goes to study at another school. Does William Wilson enroll? Well, let's see. 
So he kind of throws himself into a fool's life and years of wrongdoing. He says, I had grown much larger in body and smaller in soul. After a night of debauchery with his evil friends, a servant comes up and asks the narrator to come into the other room. Someone wants to speak to him. In this room, no light was hanging, but I could see the form of a young man about my own height, wearing clothes like those I myself was wearing. His face I could not see. When I entered, he came quickly up to me, and taking me by my arm, he said softly in my ear, William Wilson. There was something in the manner of the stranger and in the trembling of his uplifted finger which made my eyes open wide, but it was not this which had so strongly touched my mind and heart. It was the sound of those two simple, well-known words, William Wilson, which reached into my soul. Before I could think again and speak, he was gone. Now he learns that William Wilson had left school the same day he had, but paying it no mind with his family's money, he continues to live his life of evil and debauchery. The narrator. Yes. Now at school, he meets a nice, rich Mark mm-hmm. boy. He kind of plays on the fool and cons him out of all of his money. Now fearing what my friends might say about me, I was about to stop the game when his broken cry and that wild look in his eyes made me understand that he had lost everything he owned. Weak of mind and made weaker by wine, he should never have been allowed to play that night. But I had not stopped him. I'd used his condition to destroy him. So good people. But they're playing, they're like gambling in school. Playing cards, of course. The room was very quiet. I could feel the icy coldness in my friends. What I would have done, I cannot say. For at that moment, the wide, heavy doors of the room were suddenly opened. Every light in the room went out. But I had seen that a man had entered. He was about my own height. And he was wearing a very fine, long coat. The darkness, however, was now complete, and we could only feel that he was standing among us. Then we heard his voice in a soft, low, never-to-be-forgotten voice, which I felt deep in my bones. He said, Gentlemen, I am here only to do my duty. You could not know the true character of the man who has tonight taken a large amount of money for Mr. Glending. Please, have him take off his coat, and then look in it very carefully. When he was speaking, there was not another sound of the room, and as he ended, he was gone. So in his coat. Oh, a car, an ace, a sleeve. Yeah, they find all the high cards. He's been cheating. Well, so he, he is an evil person who is committed to a life of debauchery. So. Exactly. So he's told to leave, and you should really just leave town. And so he gets up, he gets his coat, and then as he's about to leave, they go to hand him his coat. But it's not his coat. Because he already has his on his arm. He takes the other coat, places it over his coat, and leaves. I ran, but I could not escape. I went from city to city, and in each one, Wilson appeared. Paris, Rome, Vienna, Berlin, Moscow. He followed me everywhere. Years passed. I went to the very ends of the earth. I ran in fear as if running from a terrible sickness, and still he followed. Again and again, I asked myself, who is he? Where did he come from? And what is his purpose? But no answer was found. I'm assuming that he is not reforming as he is going on this impromptu grand tour. Oh, no. He's continuing to just kind of be a little shit and feed off people. Yes, and... Plagued by this better angel of his nature that he very much does not want there. Yes, he keeps following him everywhere. I was at Rome during the carnival of 1835 that I went to a dance in the great house of the Duke 
I had been drinking more wine than as usual, and the room seemed very crowded and hot. I became angry as I pushed through the people. I was looking. Let me not say why. I was looking for the young, the laughing, the beautiful wife of the Duke. Subtle. I like it, Poe. Come on. This is like over two, it was 200 years ago. It's great. It's a good wink and a nod there. Suddenly I saw her, but as I was trying to get through the crowd to join her, I felt a hand placed upon my shoulder and that ever-remembered quiet voice within my ear. In a wild anger, I took him in a strong hold. Wilson was dressed, as I had expected, like myself, in a rich coat of blue. Around his body was a band of red cloth from which hung a long, sharp sword. A mask of black cloth completely covered his face. You again, I cried, my anger growing hotter with each word. Always you again. You shall not, you shall not hunt me like this until I die. Come with me now or I will kill you where you stand. I pulled him after me into a small room nearby. I threw him against the wall and closed the door. I commanded him to take his sword in his hand. And after a moment, he took it and stood waiting, ready to fight. The fight was short indeed. I was wild with hate and anger. In my arm, I felt the strength of a thousand men. In a few moments, I had forced him back against the wall, and he was in my power. Quickly, wildly, I put my sword's point again and again into his heart. This moment, I heard that someone was trying to open the door. I hurried to close it firmly and then turned back to my dying enemy. But what human words can tell the surprise, the horror which filled me at the scene I then saw? The moment in which I had turned to close the door had been long enough, it seemed, for a great change to come at the far end of the room. A large mirror, a looking glass, or so it seemed to me, now stood where it had not been before, and as I walked toward it in terror, I saw my own form, all spotted with blood, its face white, advancing to meet me with a weak, an uncertain step. It was Wilson, but now it was my own voice I heard, as he said, I've lost. If from now on you are also dead, dead to the world, dead to heaven, dead to hope. In me you lived, and in my death, see by this face, which is your own, how wholly, how completely, you have killed yourself. There's a reason, there's a reason we love Edgar Allan Poe. There is a reason. Because his stories are like, no one ever understood the writing writing to singular effect quite the way that Poe did. Yes, he was getting to that end. Right. Always. And this is a very, very smart ending. Very black swanny. Yes. If you hadn't read and seen the many, many movies, plays, poems, stories that were inspired by Poe, this would be such a shock ending. Right. Yeah, and if you hadn't just listened to two people talk about reflections for, you know, <laughs> 15, 20 minutes. But what is Wilson? What, or other Wilson? Yeah, I mean, the reflection is obviously a form of his conscience. So much more badass than Jiminy Cricket. Just saying. So we are in agreement that Wilson never existed. Well, other Wilson never existed. Most definitely. It's like, no one ever sees them fight. The lights go out when they talk. Where the hell did the other coat come from? That's the one thing. It just is like, oh. What if? But how did? But But no one sees him. The voice is sown. So we say he doesn't exist, but he did. He did exist. Inside of narrator Wilson. Yes. He's the other half. And he's always catching him when he's about to do something especially despicable, like the Duke's wife. Yes. They probably would have gotten killed too, so. Yeah, six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? Well, this is badass. Well, it's interesting because this is the opposite of our shadow. Your shadow is that negative side of the person. 
And in this case, the reflection, the mirror image is actually the good side. Let's put this in historical context, too. He's a wealthy young man with a good name. And his name serves as a reminder to his duty to his family. Like oh, he right. says yeah. that at the beginning, yeah. like, I won't say the name because I've already done too much damage to it. By them having the same name and him seeing him as an external counterpart, he's almost serving as like a, a family reminder, a, a duty, honor, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I can say that as well, definitely. But it really catches my imagination. It's such a an interesting idea that when you're icing yourself, like it's it's a story about a man who literally... It's facing himself. Can't face himself, right? Like he can't stand to look at himself in the mirror. Like it's the, all those cliches that we <laughs> come up with when we're ashamed. He's ashamed of himself. He runs from it, literally. And so Rank said about this that despite the uncanny imitation, the main character is incapable of hating his counterpart. He, and he doesn't reject the advice. He obeys it with repugnance. <laughs> well, it makes sense to me. That in the two stories we've looked at, the shadow is the darker impulse. And the reflection, which requires light to exist, is the the better of the two. But what about an image of a person that exists, whether we're looking at it or not? I mean, reflection is fleeting. You have to be present to have a reflection. What about images that are struck off independently? So the portrait. There are many cultural taboos about portraits capturing your soul. Now... Unlike many people would tell you, it's not a common Native American taboo. But it does exist in some small cultures. Right. They just don't want you to come take their picture because you're probably going to be an annoying white guy. Definitely possible. So the people of the Bering Strait believe that persons dealing in witchcraft have the power of stealing a person's shade so that without it, he will pine away and die. So once at a village on the lower Yukon River, an explorer had set up his camera to get a picture of the people as they were moving about among their houses. Now, while he was focusing the instrument, the head man of the village came up and insisted on peeping under the cloth. This is Fraser. That's why it says peeping. Being allowed to do so, he gazed intently for a minute at the moving figures on the ground glass, then suddenly withdrew his head and bawled at the top of his voice to the people, He has all of your shades in this box. Panic ensued among the group, and in an instant they disappeared, helter-skelter, into their houses. I only half believe everything that Fraser says. Like, I take it with a bit of incredulity, but okay. Cool story, bro. (laughs) Now, there are beliefs of some sort that still linger in various parts of Europe, at least a hundred years ago, (laughs) that some old women in the Greek islands of Carpathus were very angry at having a likeness drawn thinking that its consequences, they would pine and die. And also, there were people in the west of Scotland who refused to have their likeness taken, lest it prove unlucky, and give as instances the cases of several of their friends who never had a day's health after being photographed. We are all going to Instagram hell. (laughs) But the most famous of famous of famous portrait doppelgangers. Why, that would be a picture of Dorian Gray. (gasps) Oh, no. Oh, no. By the fabulous Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde is amazingly fabulous. So Dorian Gray, a picture of Dorian Gray, of course, is written by Oscar Wilde. And it raises some really interesting questions about the role of authorship and art and how much of yourself you leave in your work and how much of an effect your work has on you. Putting your soul onto the page? A bit, yes. 
So we're introduced to our three main characters, Lord Henry, who is a dandy and a hedonist, Basil Hallward, who is a very moral man and also the painter of this painting, and Dorian Gray, the subject of the work. So Lord Henry sort of functions as a surrogate for the audience, and Basil is sort of the author artist, and Dorian is the subject. But another way to look at it is that Lord Henry's sort of the id the bad influence. Mm-hmm. And Basil is sort of the superego. And Dorian is the ego. So the superego thinks the ego is the bestest. Yes, he wants to pat him on the head and things. So we begin with three distinct characters, but end up with one really entangled story. It's only one of their stories gets to matter. Of course, only the ego matters. So Oscar says, Basil is what I think I am. Lord Henry is what the world thinks of me, and Dorian is what I would like to be, in other ages, perhaps. In the first scene, we meet Lord Henry and Basil, and the painting of Dorian, not Dorian himself. And Lord Henry is very impressed with the work, and he wants to show it, exhibit it. And Basil says, oh, no, no, it must never be shown in public. Why not? Because there's, he has put too much of himself into the work. Oh, Okay. And, of course, Lord Henry is like, uh, you don't look like that. <laughs> Cute, but no. He's like, no, no, no. Not my physical self. My soul self, basically. Harry, said Basil Hallward, looking him straight in the face, every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely an accident. The occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. It is the painter who, on colored canvas, reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I am afraid that I have shown with it the secret of my own soul. The secret of his soul? Yes. It's a beautiful painting of a beautiful Adonis. Right. And Basil fears that there may be twinges of inappropriate affections and things evident in the painting. So you're saying he wants to do more than just pat him on the head? I mean, theoretically. I don't know. I kind of think it's like a very platonic Love in the classic sense, like the the Greek relationship. I think it's more of like a muse relationship. It's not so much a carnal, lusty relationship. Fine. Sorry. Take the fun out of it. (sighs) Okay, well, I'll put some back. It'll be fine. I bet you will. I will. At least Oscar Wilde will. Oh, he does. So Lord Henry meets Dorian and speaks to him of the brevity of youth and tells him to use his time and his power well, not to waste it trying to be a good person. Because... You're only going to look like this for like 10 minutes, maybe. And this really bothers Dorian because he's never had need to contemplate anything further down the line than just like looking like this and having people give him things. Of course, he's still like bachelor, younger looking guy. They call him a boy so often. Like, it's very hard for me to think of him as like even a college graduate. Like, he seems so young, but I know he's meant to be a little bit older and they're just doing that right to make him more mature but lord henry's words just really kind of start to annoy him and he goes back and he's sitting again for basil and lord henry's there just being a little jabberwocky and dorian's like are you really such a bad influence as basil says and he says all influence is bad influence that's a way of looking at things (laughs) to give up yourself to give up the things that you want is to give away a piece of your own soul to allow someone to change your will And this causes a particular look to come over Dorian's face. Changes his expression ever so slightly. 
as Basil is painting him. A few moments later, Basil declares that he is done with his portrait. A masterpiece. That's what Lord Henry says. And Henry is like, oh. and he's like, thank you for sitting so well. Dorian couldn't have done it without you, basically. And Lord Henry, of course, says, this was all my doing. Oh, of course it was. Because he made him feel something, and that comes through in the painting. Uh, right? Brought a little piece of his soul. Something like that. And he wants to buy the painting from Basil right there on the spot. And Basil tells him that it's not his. Of course, it belongs to Dorian. Now, Dorian, when he's first confronted with it, experiences like pure elation. Like, oh my God, I'm so pretty. And then has a moment of like, holy shit, I'm not always going to be this pretty. And in this weird little moment, he has like this mortality confrontation to end all whiff of death scenes. Oh God. So he's like literally confronting his mortality. Okay, so then he decides this is totally unfair. I'm having none of it. I don't like it. I don't want to get old. Basically, temper tantrum ensues. As he stood gazing at the shadow of his own loveliness, the full reality of the description flashed before him. Yes, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizened, his eyes dim and colorless, the grace of his figure broken and deformed. The scarlet would pass away from his lips and the gold would steal from his hair. The life that was to make his soul would mar his body. He would become ignoble, hideous, and uncouth. Basil sees him having like this odd reaction to the painting, looking a little bit pouty. And he's like, don't you like it? And he's like, you love your art more than you love me. That escalated quickly. Yes. And he's like, surely you're not jealous of material things. And Dorian is like, I am jealous of everything whose beauty does not die. Why should it keep what I must lose? Every moment that passes takes something from me and gives something to it. Oh, if only it were the other way. If the picture could change and I could always be what I am now. Why did you paint it? It will mock me someday. Mock me horribly. So this is our Freaky Friday moment? Yes. When the magic happens. And I like it because it is a internal wish and wish fulfillment. Like there's no like agent that he has to go see like there's, there's no, no old lady in the woods right mysterious old women etc no et right no hermit's gonna come out of the woods and fix this one for you dorian sorry if they tried to you totally prince at the beginning of beauty and the beast them shoo them you'd shoo them like the prince and yeah. then you'd get they'd come back and they'd be like just kidding i was hot the whole time and here's a rose now you learned your lesson to bring their soul-eating crocodile with them definitely so let's take a look at like what's going on with our Three main characters right now as the portrait is born. So Basil wants to give it to Dorian. Because it's really his. Right. It's his, his soul, his love, his, his feelings, whatever. And he wants to give them to Dorian. Lord Henry would like to own it, please. Because he wants to own everything, please. Yes. And Dorian would like to be it. Forever. Forever. And so because Basil is all feelings and heart... He decides, if this thing upsets Dorian, I'll just destroy it. So he goes for his palette knife, and he's going to cut up the painting, and Dorian says, no, no, stop. That would be murder. Foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then Lord Henry kind of does the equivalent of being like, Jesus Christ, you guys. What the hell? This is a weird thing to fight about. Let's not do that. And so then Dorian and Lord Henry decide they're going to go to the opera together, and Basil said, it's fine. He will just stay here 
with the real Dorian. Oh, God. The painting. Yes. Basil needs to see a therapist. Oh, yes. Oh, all kinds all of, of yes. All kinds of yes. They all need to go together and get, their, get integrated. But Dorian is delighted by this. He says, am I really like that? And Basil says, yes, just like that. <laughs> How wonderful. Oh, good. So in this first section, we can really dig into the question of authorship, ownership, and voice in a way that I think is overlooked a lot of times because the twist of the, the novella is so great. Right, that's what people remember about. That's the takeaway. But let's look at this first section, even though if anyone besides Oscar Wilde had written it, it would be a little dry. So in the preface to Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde wrote that he wanted to reveal art and conceal art's aim. Hmm, what do you mean by that? I don't know. I find it very cryptic. It gives this strange agency to the product. Are you telling me he, can, he is concealing the aim of his phrase, of his art? Yeah, he had, a, he had a tendency to sort of like go meta and i don't know if it was intentional or unintentional intentional i i just can't put my finger on it to reveal art and to conceal art's aim and it makes it seem like art is the one doing all of the bad things in a way and like we should not put it up on a pedestal and pretend it has some noble purpose it's kind of what i think he's saying you think he's saying it's because it's it's actually human it's part of somebody yes so it expresses a piece of someone's inner psyche, their soul. Right. And whatever they're telling you, like, I just wanted to express beauty and truth. Eh, That's artifice. And that makes you wonder if the art has its own agency, right? Like, it makes you wonder if it is its own actor and if it's always trying to be rid of its creator. We'll go back to Mary Shelley here. (laughs) Wilde strongly believed that personality or maybe more accurately persona should be a work of art. He wrote, a work of art is the unique result of a unique temperament. Its beauty comes from the fact that the author is what he is. Now, he speculated that human beings created art because economics and psychology created these boundaries that prevented the artist and his work from being fully integrated. They couldn't express themselves fully, therefore they segmented themselves and made these little works of art where they were true. I think many people would agree with him, many psychologists. I think that's very interesting. He wrote that life itself was an art. So this leads us to a question of what the physical body of a writer means to the textual integrity of the author or the author's voice. Can the voice and the writer coexist or is it always just a piece of the whole story until the author dies? And you can see that this has power outside of artsy types. If you are not one to sit down and draw pictures and write writings and make music and things of that nature, you or someone you know has probably gone to see a therapist at some point for some reason. Unless you went and saw like a Reiki healer healer of some kind, they probably ask you to talk. Yeah, because the whole point of talk therapy is to not only look at our feelings and face them, but also to understand where they're coming from, mm-hmm. why we're thinking certain things, because you can't change a thought pattern that might be causing a problem unless you know why you're thinking that. Right. So it's this act of putting your feelings into words that's supposed to grant you some great understanding. And so words have like this weird healing magic right there in that very common practice. You're forced to express yourself. Yes. 
it's not just an amalgamation of ideas and this swirling thoughts in our head. Put it into words. And by doing so, you are interacting with a deeper self, interacting with a deeper truth. Like you are giving voice to that weird separate part of us that we believe might exist. Writing especially, we get this artifact where an author might be going through these processes, might be putting things into words, expressing these deep ideas. And it's easy to believe that there is some sort of artifact of that self in their work. It'd be crazy to think that authors are creating things whole cloth. That there's not some sort of influence from their life or their selves within the characters and stories that they're telling. Where would the truth be if there wasn't? So what you have in a, in a written artifact like this is someone's truth, which seems a weighty thing. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. Just blew my mind. Not trying to blow your mind, dude. We're going to need it. So Wilde's this very excellent example of the kind of blurred line between art and life. His biography is so interesting in its own right that it could easily have been something he wrote. He sort of lived it. And you have to wonder how much of that was his will. Like, was he performing for an audience? Yeah, was he, he, said, he said he was. Right. And so with personal narrative, per- personal mythology, and self-expression being so key to putting yourself back together, what do we do with a person who lives out of performance, who lives life as art? What the hell is that? Is art necessarily separate and pretend? And even just his writing style itself is very identifiable, but very, very difficult to describe with any degree of brevity. It still feels modern. It does. And it feels effortless and mean. Bitchy? (laughs) It's bitchy. Bitchy. That's why no one's ever been able to describe it briefly. Because you can't write bitchy in a paper. Watch me. Uh, academic <laughs> text, like a question on your exam. Please, in one word, describe Oscar Wilde's writing style. Bitchy. Bitchy. Wait, it's better if it doesn't say it in one word. <laughs> true, true. Please write an essay. Do not use more than 10 pages of your blue book. <laughs> Bitch, please. But even there, what we just did with a, a slightly different guise very Oscar Wilde. When you talk about Oscar Wilde, you imitate Oscar Wilde. It's hard not to. He's just so funny <laughs> and mean. But a lot of people who've written about him have noticed this. And his friend Bartlett, who was writing, who was this man, a gift for Mr. Oscar Wilde, said, his words begin to ghost my writing. So he began to imitate him without Meaning knowing to. he was. Yes. So Elena Gomel, in her paper, Oscar Wilde, The Picture of Dorian Gray and the Undeath of the Author, writes, The Picture of Dorian Gray may be read as Wilde's pre-sentient commentary on his own posthumous transformation into a cultural icon. The novel dramatizes the dangers of pursuing an ideal self to the exclusion of all the complexities and divisions of a living psyche. It shows what happens when the artistic fiction of self turns against the body. In the novel... Wilde complicates his own notion of cultivation of personality through art by showing its morally dangerous and socially irresponsible side. Wilde uses morbidity, the pain and vulnerability of the body, to set limits for art. Yeah, and this story definitely hits those boundaries. 
So now that we have our kind of like lens of disputed authorship, loss of self within art, and the will of the work to speak for itself and eliminate its creators, models, and inspiration. Now that we have our murderous, murderous art, let's go back to Dorian Gray. So a little while after Dorian receives the painting from Basil, he falls in love with a beautiful actress that he discovers in a little shithole theater where the proprietor seems to be an allusion to the Wandering Jew, which is interesting. Really? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And her name is Sybil Vane. Because, a, little, a little on the nose there. Because, of course, it is. Oscar. Yes. A little on the nose. So, now Dorian is very much in love with her because of her talent, her extraordinary talent to embody these characters. She's a Shakespearean actress, and it comes alive for him as never before, and he decides he's going to bring his friends to the theater and show them all how wonderful and intelligent and talented she is. And she bombs. Aw, why? Aw, because her art suffered because she knew real love. She tells him this as he is breaking up with her because she did a shitty job in the play. She's telling him that before... She could expect no better than to be an actress. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows and thought them real. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous, old, and painted. And of course, you know, we're all like, huh, this is ironic. And she does not realize that her rejection of art is a rejection of Dorian himself because he, at this moment, has chosen to become art. He is the painting. Right. Or the painting is him. Right. Hmm. Uh But she says, you'd brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You made me understand what love really is. My love, my love, I am sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. That's great. I'll see you later. (laughs) Well, right. So she's found her own voice. She's found her own truth. She doesn't need art anymore. She's unified. She's integrated. She's experiencing all this. And so therefore, if art lives forever and she's no longer part of art, then she's become... Nothing Dorian needs. Mortal. She's become mortal. Fine. And he tells her, you have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were wonderful, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You have thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. Come on, Dorian. (laughs) My God, how mad was I to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me once. Why, once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I had never laid eyes upon you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little can you know of love? If you say it mars your art. What are you without art? Nothing. So he really is becoming a work of art. He exists for the sake of existing. And she's rejected all of it. All of the shadows. Mm -hmm. She wants real life, authenticity, love, now screw that is what he says and so he goes off and goes to bed in his home and he passes the painting and it looks a little different and the next morning he gets up and he notices that this the change was not a trick of the light it's still there and then he remembers he remembers it perfectly he had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young and the portrait go old that his 
own beauty might be untarnished, and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought, that he might keep the delicate bloom and loveliness of his just conscious boyhood. Surely his prayer had not been answered. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous even to think them. And yet, there was the picture of him with a touch of cruelty in the mouth. So this is when we start to see the change in the painting. Right. So he was cruel to Sybil. I think we can all agree, right? Yes. Bitchy. Bitchy. He's a batch. And the painting that contains his soul, maybe the painter's soul. Somebody's soul. (laughs) At least the reflection of it is now starting to show the wear of his cruelty. And he contemplates being good for a brief moment. Oh, that's nice. He's like, oh, well, I'll just not mess up again and that will be fine. But then he starts to think about, like, every time I do something bad, it's going to show up on this painting. It's going to change, and I'm going to make it change. And he says, for there would be real pleasure in watching it. He would be able to follow his mind into secret places. This portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it had revealed to him his own body, so it would reveal to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, he would still be standing where spring trembles on the verge of summer. So he starts to get this pleasure from it. Right. And I wonder if this is sort of a pleasure of authorship, if he's now in control of his own story because he's changing this art. This is a canvas on which he will express his passions. Is he becoming an author? Is that what we're seeing happen here? It's perverse, to be sure. Like he's kind of enjoying just inflicting pain on this thing. But that's exactly what he's doing. Right. And continues to do. A little time passes. Portrait gets uglier. He does more bad things. Basil comes by one day and is like, hey, dude, let me wire that painting. And he's like, no, mm-mm, you can't, you shan't, you mustn't. And Basil's like, well, at least let me look at it. And he's like, uh, uh, no. no, 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 no. And he's like, you've seen something in the painting you did not like. I was afraid this would happen. And Dorian is like, shit, <laughs> he knows. And then Basil's like, yeah, kind of had a crush on you, basically. And Dorian's like, yep, that came through loud and clear. That was it. That was the reason. That's why you can't see it. Nope, nope, nope. We can still be friends, though. You want some tea? I always fix things with tea. Of course. Yeah. But he decides that he needs to move the painting, his soul, to the attic and lock it away. I'm not saying it's a metaphor for the subconscious. But it's a metaphor for the subconscious. And he decides that he's going to wrap it in a funeral shroud. Yes, this would serve as a wrap for the dreadful thing. It had perhaps served often as a pall for the dead. Now it would hide something that had a corruption of its own, worse than the corruption of death itself, something that would breed horrors and yet would never die. What the worm was to the corpse, his sins would be to the painted image on the canvas. They would mar its beauty and eat away its grace. They would defile it and make it shameful. And yet the thing would still live on. It would always be alive. So it's almost acquiring a life of its own or or maybe even just almost taking any semblance of soul from Dorian. And siphoning off something. Little by little. And he goes on, does more shit, and he continues to interact with the painting regularly. He himself, on returning home from one of those mysterious prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends, or thought they were, would creep upstairs to the locked room and open the door with a key that never left him, and stand with a mirror in front of the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him, looking now at the evil 
aging face on the canvas, and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamored with his own beauty, and more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and often with monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands beside the coarse, bloated hands in the picture and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. So I thought this, this particular passage was interesting for a number of reasons. One, we see him continue to seek this out. Also, the image of him standing looking in a mirror and laughing maniacally in front of this decrepit old man painting looks evil and wrong. Perfect. Scary so, movie. So, so creepy. And he's mocking it. He's just taking so much pleasure in the contrast of it. He's just, again, delighting. It's just pure vanity. You know, like he's just becoming Narcissus. He's wasting away before an image of himself. Right, he's loving looking at his image, but he's also enjoying seeing the decrepitness of the portrait. And what he got away with? Yeah, I think that's some of it too. Or what he thinks he got away with. And Basil shows up. Again? Again. Basil pops up whenever Dorian's really becoming too much. Convenient. Right. And he says that he's been hearing awful, awful things about him and that he needs to know if they're true. He needs to see his soul. Meaning the painting? Well, no, no, no. That's what Dorian thinks for a second, too. But he's like, only God can do that, though. Oh, so he really means the soul. He's like, I just, like, I need to ask you. Basically, he's like, people have been talking so much shit about you, but I just thought, you know, out of respect, I'd come by and ask you myself. Like, I need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And he's taken aback, of course, but then he's like, no, no, I'll show him. And he says to Basil, you are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. Why? Why does he say that? Why Because they love each other. <laughs> no. Okay, no. eighth grade girl, stop it. Fine, fine. And because I think maybe they've had this connection. He right. feels like there's this connection with this painting. I mean, we talked to us like, is the artist's soul in it? Mm. Is his soul in it? I mean, it's a combination of the two. And I think there's something about, like, you helped me find myself. Like, you showed me this. Like, you showed me who I was. Right. Like, and I hate it, but still, you're the one who showed me. So he does show him the painting. And Basil is, of course, horrified. And he's like, what have you done? This has got to be the chemicals. Or maybe I use bad paint. Or, oh, it's not my painting. It's not my painting. It's just one that kind of looks like my painting. Holy shit, that's my signature. Mm. Oh my God. No, it's definitely it. He says, you told me you destroyed it. And Dorian says, I was wrong. It destroyed me. I don't believe it is my picture. Can't you see your romance in it? Wow, he's bitter. (laughs) Oh, something fierce there. But what's interesting is it's not as simple as Dorian just being a dick, which it would be really easy to say. Because he really did have this kind of romantic view, even if it isn't like a sexual romance, like this very divine mm-hmm. Worshipped him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he put that idea onto the canvas. It's a graven image. Like if you take a step back, it gets like another level more difficult because here we have Dorian taking him and being like, here's my soul. Like literally like bearing his soul. 
To which Basil responds, the horror. Oh my God. The horror. I want no part of this. Fix it. So it's like he's being rejected too. But he's being rejected because of what he has done to cause the painting to be so terrible or to cause his true self to be so horrid. And you can see it as like he defiled Basil's faith in him as well or, or love for him or whatever. But still, you know, if you want to read it this way, it could be like, you said you love me. I expected you to accept all of my flaws and you don't. So I'm mad. And that may be irrational, but this is an Oscar Wilde story and people's emotions are big. (laughs) Irrational doesn't matter. And he says, each of us has heaven and hell within him, Basil. And so he blames Basil for several things. He blames him for making him fall in love with himself, with his beauty. And putting such a high value on it. Making it like the linchpin of his existence. He also blames Basil for creating the painting. You know, without him, none of this would have ever happened. Of course not. And then, you know, there is that like weird rejection thing. So Dorian has exposed his soul to Basil. What is he to do now? Basil tells him, you have to pray. You have to fix this. You have to repent. You have to say you're sorry. We can fix it. We can fix it. Let's just pray. Let's pray. Let's go find a hermit. Yes, let's find some magical help. Please, let's do this. And Dorian turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil, he murmured. It's never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try, if we can, to remember a prayer. Isn't there a verse somewhere? Though your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them white as snow. Those words mean nothing now. Hush, don't say that. You've done enough evil in your life, my God. Don't you see the accursed thing leering at us? Dorian glanced at the picture, and suddenly, an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him. The mad passions of the hunted animal stirred within him, and he loathed the man who was seated at the table more than he had ever loathed anything in his whole life. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered on the top of a painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up some days ago to cut a piece of cord, and had forgotten to take away with him. He moved slowly toward it, passing Hallward as he did so. As soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward moved in his chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein behind the ear, crushing the man's head down to the table and stabbing again and again. There was a stifled groan, then a horrible sound of someone choking with blood. The outstretched arm shot up convulsively, Three times, waving grotesque, stiff-fingered hands in the air. He stabbed him once more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited for a moment, still pressing the head down, and then he threw the knife on the table and listened. So he killed his maker. Now what does he need to do? More bad stuff. Of course. So he gets a chemist to help him dispose the body, and then the chemist is so racked with guilt that he kills himself. We've also learned now that this is not the first time he's been responsible for a death. He was, in fact, the impetus for Sybil Vane, our... Juliet. Juliet, (laughs) to drink prussic acid in her dressing room. And so she killed herself. And her brother has been looking for the man who broke her heart all these years. And he is going to dispatch him and avenge her death. And one night, Dorian runs into said brother. He's like, my God, you look just like the man but you're far too young to be him. And then fearing the pursuit, he runs home and he's like, I'm just leaving. I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of town. There's no evidence that I've ever done anything wrong. 
But then he remembers. The painting. Shit. The painting. The picture itself. That was evidence. He would destroy it. Why had he kept it so long? It had given him pleasure once to watch it changing and growing old. Of late, he had felt no such pleasure. It had kept him awake at night. And when he had been away, he had been filled with terror, lest other eyes should look upon it. It had brought melancholy across his passions. Its mere memory had marred many moments of joy. It had been like a conscience to him. Yes, it had been conscience. He would destroy it. He looked round and saw the knife that had stabbed Basil Hallward. He had cleaned it many times, till there was no stain left upon it. It was bright and glistened. As it had killed the painter, so would it kill the painter's work, and all that it meant. It would kill the past. When that was dead, he would be free. He seized it and stabbed the canvas with it, ripping the thing right from the top to the bottom. There was a cry heard and a crash. When they entered, they found hanging upon the wall a splendid portrait of their master, as they had last seen him, in all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man in an evening dress, with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of visage. It was not until they examined the rings that they recognized who it was. So just like in William Wilson, the encounter with the doppelganger, Mm -hmm. with the reflection of himself, leads to not only death, but death by one's own hand. Right. And I think it's very interesting because he's killing the work, right? That's his idea. Once this work, this art, is dead, the past, I will be free. I'm going to kill this art and everything that it represents. And I think there's a little twist here where because of him taking over the authorship, he's changed it so much that it's no longer the work of art. He is. You know, he is what Basil put down on canvas, and this thing is not. One of my questions is, like, why does, the, why does his death restore the painting? Because I think he's accepting his wrongdoing. Oh, you think it's he's like getting, a... He, he's not getting pleasure from it anymore. Mm-hmm. He says so. Is it that art is stronger than life? Is it that idea? Is it like this thing outlives them all? This this moment, this this thing you put down, no matter what you do to it, will still exist. Your work outlives you. Your work will be there forever, and you're just a fleeting thing. Is it a dark night of the soul? <laughs> well, I mean, there are always those ideas of this is my legacy. Right. In art, this is my legacy. This is how I gain immortality. And even though people like to point to this story as a lesson in vanity, eh. you can see it. It's I mean, like, there. that's not the subtext. <laughs> it's there. It is the text. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the subtext. I mean, it's, it's really an exploration of mortality. I think it's a fear of maybe the madness that you allow yourself to feel in order to create art overwhelming you. And making you irrelevant in the power of your creation. And this fear that whatever you make is going to outlive you. And a reminder that you're not going to live forever. And I think that's why we keep seeing that idea of the double used as this ominous bad omen that comes up. So Otto Rank, who we've been talking about, our Freudian analyst who did a lot of writing on the double began to think of the double in a different way as he got older. He began to think it was a representation of the immortal self. 
He said man's need for self-perpetuation, for immortalizing himself, led to the development of civilization and its spiritual values. The primitive concept of the soul as a duality, man and his shadow, appears in modern man in the motif of the devil, assuring him, on the one hand of immortality, and on the other, threateningly announcing his death. Now, the artist can present a rational form of this interpretation both in himself and in folk belief, and he can assure his immortality through this art. But kind of like you were saying, it's like, are you able to put down what you actually want? Is that possible once it's out of your hands? And so maybe that is some of that fear of death that we have. Now, one writer Spice wrote, Man's horror of death does not result merely from the natural love of life. The self-love is an inseparable element of his being, and it is founded and footed the instinct for self-preservation, and from it emerges the deep and powerful longing to escape death or the submergence into nothingness, and the hope of again awakening to a new life. The thought of losing oneself is so unbearable for man, and it is this thought which makes death so terrible for him. This hopeful longing may be criticized as childish vanity, foolish megalomania. The fact remains that it lives in our hearts. It influences and rules over our imagination and endeavors. So that fear and hope colors everything that we do. Especially in an, from an artistic standpoint. Yes. Definitely. Or any sort of creative endeavor. I mean, I guess you could extrapolate it further and say what we do for trying to you know, live a good life. Mm-hmm. It is related. I don't want to think that I think this much. <laughs> That's why it's all under the surface. Thank you, Freud. So Rank said that there are odd representations of the double as a shadow, a mirror image, or a portrait, the meaningful evaluation of which we do not quite understand even though we can follow it emotionally. And the writer, as in his reader, a super-individual factor seems to be unconsciously vibrating here, lending to these motifs mysterious psychic resonance. So he's saying there's almost like a communication between the creator and the audience that transcends normal communication, and that something about that connection influences us to create this motif of weird vibrations or breaks in the fabric. Well, it's like it's like a collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. You know? It's all these things we can relate to on some subconscious level. Mm-hmm. But what happens if things get out of order? If all this is right under the surface and it's all contained and controlled and we're trying to express it and achieve some kind of legacy, that's one thing. But what happens when the fear of death overwhelms the hope for legacy? Well, let's look at one more story today, dear listeners. Now, this is by Maupassant as La Ola from 1887. It's written in a diary form. Mm -hmm. And you have this nice main character, and he's kind of living his life happily. And he's looking at the nature and the boats and all these nice things. The nature. The nature. You heard me. Now, the main character, the narrator, tells us he is suffering from a fever and sadness and this pervasive feeling of danger and misfortune. And this comes upon very suddenly. May 16th. I am feverish, horribly feverish. Or rather, I am in a state of feverish innervation, which makes my mind suffer as much as my body. Without ceasing, I have the horrible sensation of some danger threatening me, the apprehension of some coming misfortune. 
Now he's sick for several weeks and he, he cannot sleep. He is shaking and fearful, a fear he has never known before. He lies in bed just worrying. The moment when I suddenly fell asleep, as a man throws himself into a pool of stagnant water in order to drown, I do not feel this perfidious sleep coming over me as I used to, but a sleep which is close to me and watching me, which is going to seize me by the head to close my eyes and annihilate me. I feel it and I know it, and I feel also that somebody is coming close to me, is looking at me, touching me, is getting onto my bed, is kneeling on my chest, is taking my neck between his hands and squeezing it. Squeezing it with all his might in order to strangle me. I struggle, bound by that terrible powerlessness which paralyzes us in our dreams. I try to cry out, but I cannot. I want to move, I cannot. I try the most violent efforts, and out of breath, to turn over and throw off this being which is crushing and suffocating me. I cannot. And then suddenly I wake up, shaken and bathed in perspiration. I light a candle and find that I am alone. One day while he's in town, he begins to get these feelings again. Suddenly it seemed as if I were being followed that somebody was walking at my heels, close, quite close to me, near enough to touch me. Everywhere he feels this presence enters into his thoughts, it controls him, it pursues him. Often he'll turn around in a split second to grasp it, and it'll be gone. Now since he's feeling so ill, he does go on a trip and returns refreshed. Now one night he discovers to his terror that his carafe, filled in the evening, is completely empty, although no one could have entered his locked room. From this moment on, he becomes more and more obsessed with this invisible spirit he's begun to call La Orla, who lives in him, or next to him. Uh. <laughs> I'm decidedly taken again, for my old nightmares have returned. Then I went to bed and fell into one of my terrible sleeps. Picture yourself a sleeping man who is being murdered, who wakes up with a knife in his chest, gurgling in his throat, is covered with blood, can no longer breathe, is going to die, and does not understand anything at all about it. There you have it. Have I lost my reason? In that case, I was a somnambulist, was living without knowing it, that double mysterious life which makes us doubt whether there are not two beings in us. Have I lost my reason? In that case, I was a somnambulist, was living without knowing it, that double mysterious life which makes us doubt whether there are not two beings in us. Whether a strange, unknowable, and invisible being does not, during our moments of mental and physical torpor, animate the inert body forcing it to a more willing obedience than it yields to ourselves. So from now on, the character is scared. He's afraid of losing his cognitive ability. He's feeling threatened by this madness. He writes, it's great, just like, July 5th, I'm going mad. July 6th, I am going mad. Am I going mad? Who will save me? July 10th, undoubtedly I must be mad. And yet, August 9th, nothing. But I am afraid. August 10th, nothing. But what will happen tomorrow? August 11th. Still nothing. I cannot stop at home with this fear hanging over me and these thoughts in my mind. I shall go away. August 14th. I am lost. Somebody possesses my soul and governs it. Somebody alters all my acts, all my movements, all my thoughts. I am no longer master of myself. Nothing except an enslaved and terrified spectator of the things which I do. August 17th. One might say that man, ever since he has thought, 
has had a foreboding and a fear of a new being stronger than himself, his successor in this world, and that, feeling him near and not being able to foretell the nature of the unseen one, he has, in his terror, created the whole race of hidden beings, vague phantoms, born of fear. At first I saw nothing, and then suddenly it appeared to me as if a page of the book, which had remained open on my table, turned over of its own accord. Not a breath of air had come in at my window, and I was surprised and waited. In about four minutes, I saw, I saw, yes, I saw with my own eyes, another page lift itself up and fall down on the others, as if a finger had turned it over. My chair fell over as if somebody had run away from me. My table rocked, my lamp fell, and went out, and my window closed. Now, a few days later, he's in his room again. It was as bright as midday, but I did not see myself in the glass. It was empty, clear, profound, full of light, but my figure was not reflected in it, and I, I was opposite to it. I saw the large, clear glass from top to bottom. How frightened I was, and then suddenly I began to see myself through a mist in the depths of the looking glass, in a mist as it were, or through a veil of water, and it seemed to me as if this water were flowing slowly from left to right and making my figure clearer every moment. It was like the end of an eclipse. So he finally gets to the point where he has to get rid of this invisible tyrant. He must gain the upper hand. So he gets someone to come and install locks and iron shutters on his house. Now he cautiously steals out one evening in order to imprison La Ola. And then he sets the house on fire and stands and watches it burn. Almost immediately, two other windows flew into fragments, and I saw that the whole of the lower part of the house was nothing but a terrible furnace. But a cry, a horrible, shrill, heart-rendering cry, a woman's cry, sounded through the night, and two garret windows were opened. I had forgotten the servants. I saw the terror-struck faces and the frantic waving of their arms. But in the end, as he's thinking on this, he feels that maybe it's impossible to truly get rid of La Orla. No, no, there's no doubt about it. He is not dead. Then, then, I suppose I must kill myself. Whoops. Servants. Yeah. Oops. I had to put that in. But this story is written by Maupassant, who is a very prolific. famous and prolific French short story writer and novelist from 1800s. Brief bio. Emile Zola said... He was the happiest and unhappiest of men. And that's a good place to start. Henry James, because Henry James has to weigh in on everything. Everything at the time. Much like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, says, Monsieur de Montpassant sees human life as a terribly ugly business, relieved by the comical. But even the comedy is, for the most part, the comedy of misery, avidity, of ignorance, helplessness, and grossness. And I would say to Henry, hello, pot. Right. So not exactly the cheeriest of guys. No. But he is not a horror story writer. No. That is not his shtick. No, that comes later. So his aim was to be part of a new movement, a new literary movement called uh, naturalism. Yes, yes. And this, you know, aimed at showing life as it was. Not an idealized life, but real, real, true stories. Gritty. Very Carver. Oh, yeah. Carver is a disciple. Guy de Montpassant was born on August 5th of 1850, and he was the oldest child to an aristocratic family in Normandy. Now, his father was a bit of a womanizer, and Gustave got das boot around the time that 
Guy was 11. They're French. <laughs> la boute. Le, la boute. Das boute. So he decided at age 13 that he would go to seminary, which went well until it did not when he was about 18. And he was decidedly over it. He was expelled from seminary for being over it. And uh, maybe picking up a few of his dad's habits. Yes. Yeah. And then he went to Paris and studied law until he was 20 when he left to serve in the army during the Franco-Prussian War. Now, upon his return from the war, he met Flaubert. His father? No. Some people think. <laughs> people are fun, aren't they? He was introduced by his mother, so yeah, that kind of... Yeah. He began to partake in all of the bohemian uh, leftovers that exist in Paris. Love you, Bohem. And he particularly enjoyed ladies of ill repute. Typically... His writing has more of this flavor. This is something he wrote about a particular lady of the night that he knew. She was absolutely crazy into the bargain. She had just told us that she'd been born with a glass of absinthe in her belly, which her mother had drunk just before giving birth to her, and she had never sobered up since. Every week we would travel along the Seine with a load of five strapping light-hearted fellows steered by a lively scatterbrained creature under a parasol of painted paper. We adored her. First, for a variety of reasons, and then for one in particular. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, he did. So Flaubert took him under his wing and was like, some advice. Only write what you know. Do not expect to make money from your art and work and work on your craft. So during the day, he worked as a civil servant with the Department of the Navy. But at night, he wrote and he took care of his ailing mother. But he began to struggle with depression. For three weeks, I've been trying to work every night, and I haven't been able to write a single page. Nothing. The result is that I'm gradually falling into a black depression and will have a hard time climbing out again. Now, he did have some other health issues around this time, including skin irritations and heart palpitations and bouts of very disordered moods. And he was diagnosed with rheumatic condition by the doctors he consulted. But Flaubert wrote to him, Come, my dear friend, you seem badly worried. You could use your time more agreeably. I've come to suspect that you've become something of a loafer with too many whores and too much rowing, too much exercise. Civilized man does not need so much locomotion as doctors pretend. Oh my God, I love that. Hang it in your office. Uh, <laughs> you get it, Flaubert. So, too much whores and rowing. Be still. Stop whoring. <laughs> but this was a little bit more prescient than it might seem because he was probably suffering from the early stages of syphilis during this time. And he definitely wrote what he knew. <laughs> Absolutely. And readers loved his humor and candid sexuality, and he became a very, very widely read author. And his books sold very well, even during his lifetime. He went on to create 300 short stories, six novels, and a volume of verse during the 1880s. Now, when Flaubert died, Montpassant was at the height of his career, but it began to reflect a very dark sensibility. And the stories became more paranoid and anxious. However, audiences still enjoyed reading his work because it was so simple and real and sincere. Now, his career really lasted about 10 or 12 years, but he enjoyed his success. He traveled in luxury on his yacht, the Bellamy, and enjoyed a very luxurious lifestyle and maintained an apartment with a separate little annex for ladies. Ladies. For meeting with ladies. ladies. <laughs> well, they were when they left. That's true. I, all I can think about is like, God, he's patient zero because he's like all over the world. So at this point, we assume 
using modern medical knowledge, we can assume that this is during his second phase of syphilis. Right, whenever you're really pretty much asymptomatic. But his health began to deteriorate in the latter years of the 1880s, and his work grew even more macabre, even more paranoid, just as he did. And this is where we get to this story, the story of La Hola, this doppelganger figure menacing our dear narrator. It's living in me or right beside me. That, that stuck with me. me. Yeah, I don't like that. Just out of my grasp. Now it comes to light that he's had several experiences with himself, himself. His friend Paul Bourget said that Guy had confessed to seeing his own double frequently. He knew it was a hallucination, but he also knew that seeing this hallucination meant he was going mad. You can see that reflected in the story. He's like, I know this isn't real, but I'm seeing it. And now I think I'm crazy. And that makes me afraid. (laughs) It's scary no matter what you think of it. And there's even an account of him saying, every other time I come home, I see my double. I open my door and I see him sitting in my armchair. I know it for a hallucination, even while experiencing it. Curious. If I didn't have a little common sense, I'd be afraid. And so you see him becoming more and more ill, sort of in the story of La Orla. It's the opposite of someone who has lost the ability to speak and can't tell you what their illness is like. It's like he's lost, he's lost the control of what's happening, but still retains his ability to express it. One of his lovers claimed that he would stop in the middle of a sentence, complaining of many voices in his ears, which sounded as if they came from a pit. He said the face in the mirror was not his own, and he became fixated on the brevity of happiness, which reminds me of... How long do you mean to be content? And then there's another record from a physician, Dr. Solier, who would go on to write about otoscopy, seeing oneself as a psychological phenomenon, who records, One of his close friends told me that in 1889, Maupassant had a vivid hallucination one afternoon and told his friend of it that evening, working at his desk in his office, where his servant had orders never to enter while he was writing. He seemed to hear his door open. He turned. It was not a little surprised when he himself, Maupassant's double, entered and came to sit in front of him, head in hand, and began to dictate everything he wrote on the occasion. When he had finished and stood up, the hallucination disappeared. The result was the short story, The Orla. So it was written by his double. Or at least a part of himself he couldn't recognize. So another of his friends, Axel Munth, had also heard the story of the dictating double. Hmm. So it's very well reported. And then his lover, Giselle d'Estoc, reports that on one occasion, Maupassant told her that his double had visited him three times and had rifled through his papers and manuscripts, and that he had finally understood the double's attitude on the last visit. He is furious at my presence. He hates me, has contempt for me, because he claims that he alone is the author of my books, and he accuses me of robbing him. Wow, it's amazing how much this is reflected in the story. And he would write about, like, an author who could not recognize himself in the mirror. And he would write about, you know, madness, coming madness, seeing madness approaching. He would write about... You could just see the anxiety that the narrator of La Orla always feels. So a critic, Bayard, says, The double in Montpessant is not just a theme. It intervenes in the very midst of his writing function. And in this, it corresponds to a true manner, not theorized, but affected in writing, of imagining the physical world. So 
if you're conjuring a scene, right? Like if you're right. if you're like trying to get your thoughts out on paper, if you're writing about a castle and you need to describe the castle, your mind's eye is looking at it to see what it looks like and what you need to describe. So you might gaze around your imaginary castle and look and see what's there and you might talk about a purple curtain or whatever. And in the act of writing, you're creating it in your mind's eye. Well, by giving voice to a psychological phenomenon in your writing, you're conjuring it, you're making it real, you're turning it into part of you or part of the narrator, part of the text, and it is real in that space because you were imagining what it would feel like if it were real. Trippy. (laughs) I get get it, but it's trippy, definitely. It's, It's, again, goes to that, are you breaking off a piece of your soul to create art? And is this a projection of that? So as Maupassant became increasingly depressed and his syphilis led to that tertiary stage, which is where it starts to affect your spinal cord and your brain. On January 2nd of 1892, he attempted to kill himself. And this is as reported by his loyal and steadfast valet, Francois. The one who was supposed to be watching out for those doubles. Yeah, that kept missing him. But he writes, It was about a quarter of two when I heard a noise, and I rushed into the small room next to the staircase. And I found Monsieur Montpassant standing with his throat bleeding. See, Francois, he said immediately, what I have done? I have cut my own throat. This is a case of absolute madness. It's like he was trying to prove it. Or trying to rationalize, like, how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I called Raymond. We put him on the bed in the next room, and hastily, I bandaged the wound. Dr. Devilcourt suddenly called in. Kindly help me on this mournful occasion. Notwithstanding all I felt, I was able to hold the lamp while the doctor rapidly sewed the wound and aided by Raymond, who did not flinch, and made himself useful. The operation succeeded perfectly. My poor master was quite calm, but did not utter a single word before the door. When the latter had left, he told me how he regretted having done such a thing and causing us so much worry. He gave his hand to Raymond and me. He wanted to ask our forgiveness for what he had done. He fathomed all the depth of his misfortune. His large eyes were fixed upon us, as if they were requesting some words of consolation, if possible, of hope. In moments like these, so painful that it seems we could not undergo them a second time without losing our reason, whence comes the strength that enables us to struggle against evidence itself. I continued to try to comfort my poor wounded master with all the soothing expressions I could find. I repeated them twenty times. They did him some good, and he clung desperately to the most insane of hopes. At last, his head drooped, his eyelids closed, and he slept. And so he did survive this attempt, but the rest of his life was quite terrible. As the syphilis began to eat away at his brain and spinal cord, he was reduced to crawling on all fours, and he was convinced that his brain was seeping out through his nose. And he was eventually committed to the Paris Lunatic Asylum. And he died some months later, a little before his 43rd birthday, on July 6th of 1893. So the question comes to what Maupassant was saying. He's like, look at this. This is madness. And the question is, was he mad? Ah, he's always so rational. His voice is always so reasonable. It's very hard to imagine. I guess compulsion is madness. Well, a lot of times people like to blame the neurosyphilis Mm -hmm. on his hallucinations and his later works. But there's a lot of evidence in his writing 
that shows that he was someone that most likely did have hallucinations prior. But you have to remember, like we talked about in our Phantasms of the Living episode, having hallucinations does not in and of itself mean that there's something wrong. People that are completely and perfectly of no other mental illness can have hallucinations. He wrote in his earlier story afloat, because I bear within me that double life, which is the strength and simultaneously the misery of the writer. His idea was not new. And in Maupassant's sketch, he, which many feel was a draft for Laola, it appears as a confession of a man who must marry against his better judgment, simply because he can no longer endure being alone at night. After once, upon coming home, after having seen him occupying his own accustomed place in the armchair by the fire, he pursues me incessantly. That's madness. Yet it is so. Who? He. I know very well that he does not exist, that he is unreal. He lives only in my misgivings and my fears and my anxiety. But when I am living with someone, I feel clearly, yes, quite clearly, he will no longer exist. For he exists only because I am alone, solely because I am alone. Even before his death, papers like Le Figaro were identifying evidence of madness in his work. Maupassant has fallen victim to the intensity of his own sensation. He described and analyzed the madness long before the dreadful sickness overcame him. Also, he liked his drugs. (laughs) Cool. Which probably didn't hurt having hallucinations. I mean, isn't that sometimes the desired effect? You're right. And also, it was not only evidence in his own writing that there was like a history of maybe kind of like seeing stuff, being a little bit anxious, afraid of the dark. In his valet's account of his life, years before his suicide attempt, he writes, One night in April, he called me to him. He felt ill and would not allow me to leave him for a minute. So I made him a cup of chamomile tea, and when the sun rose, I was still near him. But in the morning, he felt better. Later, he writes, On the fourth morning, my master is ready at seven, and he goes to take a shower bath. I know that during these four nights, he has slept but little. He tells me he hears strange noises in the night. I can well believe it, since wide awake and seated on a rickety chair that hurts me, I also hear noises I cannot explain. My nervous system is just now rather highly strung, certainly. But I have my wits about me, and neither my master nor I know what is commonly called fear. We are indifferent about this house being haunted, or not, but all the same. We should like some rest. And now one writer says that the well-known nervous and hypersensitive disposition of Maupassant could certainly have been one of the major factors in his early experience of hallucinations. You can look at the chronology of his stories, and this strongly supports the view that Maupassant had early experience of hallucinations before any of his syphilitic symptoms or his severe migraines appeared, and before he began to read more about like neurology and got involved in uh, the famous French neurologist Charcot's uh, kind of circle. And of course, these were not only happening at night, so this isn't just like nightmares waking him up. His valet report. On the 26th in the afternoon, my master told me that he was about to take a walk on the road to Grasset. He was back in 10 minutes. I was dressing. He called me loudly, insisted on seeing me at once, so as to tell me what he had seen on the way to the cemetery. A shadow! A phantom! Certainly he had not been the victim of some sort of hallucination. I gathered he had felt frightened, but that he would not say so. When lunching, the next day, he coughed slightly and told me with the utmost gravity 
that assuredly a fragment of the fish that he was eating had passed into his lungs and that he might die of it. My scanty knowledge does not allow me to take this seriously. I simply advise him to drink some very hot tea. The result was satisfactory. Oh, this is closer to a suicide attempt, and you can see that the paranoia is moving from external to internal, and the lines are sort of blurring, and that he's like afraid of what's happening with his own body and his own mind, and he's seeing things during the day and like not able to function, like not able to make that walk that he wanted to make, and seeing phantoms and shadows, and it's definitely getting more pronounced. So is this like when syphilis is giving an alley-oop to the pre-existing condition, you think? Yeah, most likely. But one of the most interesting pieces of evidence that he leaves behind, that his writing is madness, and that his madness is part of him, independent of his illness, is a letter which was published in 1885 in Le Gilles And it was largely ignored until after his death. It was called The Letter of a Madman, and he signed it Montfregnus, which was his nom de plume. It begins, My dear doctor, I place myself entirely in your hands. Do with me as you wish. And it ends. The next day, I shut myself away an hour early, looking for ways I might actually come to see the invisible spirit which visited me. And I did see it. I almost died of fright. I lit all the candles in my fireplace and my chandelier. The room was lit up as if for a soiree. My two lamps burned on my table. Opposite my bed, an old oak four-poster to the right of my fireplace, to the left of my door, which I had fastened. Behind me, a cavernous mirrored wardrobe. I was regarding myself in it. My eyes seemed odd, and the pupils were dilated. Then I sat down, just as any other day. The noise had occurred the day before, and the day before, at precisely twenty-two minutes past nine. I waited. When the exact moment came, I experienced an indescribable feeling as if a fluid substance, an overwhelming liquid, had passed through every pore of my flesh, saturating my soul in a fear both ghastly and strangely comforting. Then the creaking sound began again, close up against me. I swiveled round so rapidly I almost fell over. You could see it, all oh, clear as day. I was no longer visible in the mirror. It was empty, clear, bathed in light. I wasn't there. And yet, I was right in front of it. I watched with terror in my eyes. I did not dare approach, only too aware that he was between us, the unseen one, and that he was hiding me. Oh, how terrified I was. And that was when I began to discern myself through a mist at the base of the mirror, a mist like that which creeps across water. And it seemed to me that this sluggish water was ebbing from left to right, revealing a little more of me with each passing second. It was like the close of an eclipse. What was hiding me had no contours, but a kind of hazy transparency, which was becoming gradually less opaque. And eventually, I could see myself clearly, just as I did when I was regarding myself each day. So I had seen it, and have never seen it again. But I wait for it constantly, and feel my mind is led astray from all this waiting. I stay for hours... Nights, days, weeks in front of my mirror waiting for it, but it no longer comes. It is understood that I have seen it, but I sense I will wait nevertheless, forever if need be, until death. I will wait without respite before that mirror, like a hunter lying in wait for his quarry. 
And in that mirror, I began to see the most deranged images. Monsters, hideous corpses, all manner of terrifying beasts, ghastly wraiths, all the fantastical visions that come to haunt the minds of madmen. There is my confession, my dear doctor. Now tell me, what should I do? What should I do? What do we do? What do we do whenever we see there are things we don't want to see in the mirror or in the portrait? Or in the darkness of our shadow. Now Jung, who we mentioned earlier, talks about these different parts of our self and that we have our persona, which we project onto the world. Our social mask. And he says, fundamentally, this is nothing real. It's a compromise between the individual and society as to what a man should appear to be. In a certain sense, all this is real. Yet in relation to the essential individuality of the person concerned, it is only a secondary reality, a product of compromise. He also said that there could be no doubt that man is, on the whole, less good than he imagines himself or wants to be. Everyone carries a shadow. So the shadow is the other part of us that is pushed away. That is pushed away because we have to project this persona. It's not always a negative, but a lot of times it's the things that are not socially acceptable. But that might be a very real part of us. They are a very real part of us. And the less of it that is embodied in our individual's consciousness or in the persona we're projecting, Jung says the blacker and denser it is. The shadow may appear as a cold and intellectual individual because it's embodying all the qualities that we detest in other people. And so sometimes the way that we deal with our shadow is projecting it onto others. <laughs> and that is, of course, the least healthy way. Because there can be good things in there, too. Things that can provide a creative spark that can be used in artistic madness. Young mentions a 45-year-old patient who had suffered from this neuroses since he was 20 and he'd become completely cut off from the world. And he once said, But I can never admit to myself that I've wasted the best 25 years of my life. It's often tragic to see how blatantly a man can bungle his own life <laughs> and the lives of others, yet remain totally incapable of seeing how much the whole tragedy originates in himself and how he continually feeds it and keeps it going. Not consciously, of course, for consciously he is engaged in bewailing and cursing a faithless world that recedes further and further into the distance. Rather, it is an unconscious factor which spins the illusion that veils his world. But what is being spun is a cocoon, which in the end will completely envelop him. So the shadow is this universal feature of the human psyche, but it shouldn't be dismissed as just evil or demonic. It's, it can have good things, and Alan Watt, is this famous philosopher and friend of Jung, was speaking about Jung, saying there was sort of a twinkle in his eye that gave me the impression that he knew himself to be just as much a villain as everybody else. He had a hint of Duncan, a thought in the very far, far back of your mind, in the back of his mind that showed in the twinkle in his eye. It showed that he knew and recognized what I sometimes call the element of irreducible rascality in himself. <laughs> and he knew it so strongly and so clearly and in a way so lovingly that he would not condemn the things in others and would therefore not be led into those thoughts, feelings, and acts of violence towards others which are always characteristic of the people who project the devil in themselves upon the outside, upon somebody else. 
upon a scapegoat. Behind the social persona that is presented to the world, there is the shadow, and the shadow is an important part of us that helps contribute to one's greatness. Now, Alan Watts said the same way that manure is contributive to the perfume of the rose. Now, perhaps this sounds simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impotent of all offenders, yes, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy that must be loved. What then? Condemn and rage against ourselves? We hid him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. Young said that to a group of clergymen. And there's something divine about it. What it asks of us is when we meet our shadow, not to fight it. Maybe to listen to that reflection. Or appreciate the beauty that it has to offer. Or to accept the darkness of a shadow as a protective, shady spot to stay out of the sun for a little while. Now, Edward Whitmont said, when there is an impasse and sterile time in our lives, we must look to the dark, hitherto unacceptable side, which has been at our conscious disposal. But it's scary to look into the dark and look into the void and look into the things that we've hidden away, that we've hidden behind our persona, our mask. But sometimes we may need to look into that shadow to find our truth. That's not just a story. That's not just a story.